the hell? What the? the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. Southern Sense. You're listening to us live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie. And I won't have a co-host until the last hour of the show, so if anyone is bold enough and daring enough to join me, feel free to call in at 917-889-3675. We got ourselves a marvelous show today. We've got two congressional candidates, one from the 7th District in Georgia and another from my own district right here in South Carolina, District 1, uh, running up against incumbents, and we're going to have a lot of fun, fun with them. So it's going to be the deplorable march on D.C. Um, and there's so much more to talk about today. So much is going on the news. It's like it's exploding. And let's not even start talking about James Comey. <laughs> Can anyone please put handcuffs on the man and march him? <laughs> Let him do a perp walk, please. Uh, anyway, we've got also great guests coming up later on uh, this month. Actually, next month, right at the end of this month. Uh, we've got coming up next week, um, Kathy Landing, 
who is running also for Congress of this district, District 1. We're getting a crowded field running for the seat that uh, Joe Birkin Cunningham uh, has, formerly that of uh, uh, Congressman Mark Sanford. Uh, so it's going to be a big fight here in South Carolina. And on Friday the 13th, ooh, what a day, Friday the 13th, we have Judge Janine Pirro returning. She's got a new book that was just released a couple of days ago, and we will be talking to her about that and other things going on. Uh, and, of course, when I had her on the last time, I asked her about this Pfizer warrants and what we call fruit of the poisonous tree, that if the warrants uh, were gotten by uh, illegal means, that anything gained from those warrants is called fruit of the poisonous tree and cannot be used. And lo and behold, what broke yesterday? The fruit of the poisonous tree bloomed. It ripened. And boy, does it stink. Oh, man. The Pfizer warrants found out three of the four that were issued were bogus. Um, we'll be talking to her about that when she comes on, and we'll maybe even talking to it with our guests tonight. Uh, so there's a lot to do and a lot to talk about. And as I said, I am co-host list. So if I sound like I'm rambling, call in and tell me to shut up. Uh, anyway, those that listen to the show know also that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And unfortunately, today's dedication goes out to not one or two, but to three fallen heroes. Today's show is going to be dedicated to Army Chief Warrant Officer 2nd, Jonathan R. Farmer, Navy SEAL veteran Scott A. Wirtz, and Senior Chief Cryptologist Technician Shannon Kent. All three were killed on January 16th of this year while serving during Operation Inherent Resolve in a suicide bomb attempt in Syria. And this is from Stars and Stripes. And it reads, The ISIS-claimed bombing of a restaurant in Syria on Wednesday, December, I'm sorry, January 16th of this year, that killed an Army Green Beret with four children, a former Navy SEAL working for the Pentagon's intelligence agency, and a Navy linguist was announced by the Pentagon. Army Chief Warrant Officer 2, Jonathan R. Farmer, 37, of Boynton Beach, Florida, Navy Chief Petty Officer Shannon N. Kemp of Pine Plains, New York, 35, and Defense Intelligence Agency civilian Scott A. Wirtz, a Navy SEAL, veteran Navy SEAL, of St. Louis, Missouri, were killed in a blast, the deadliest incident for the U.S. military since it began operating in Syrian grounds in 2015. The attack in a small northern Syrian town of Mumbai also killed an American contractor working with the Defense Department. The DOD declined to name the contractor, but her younger brother identified her as Gandhar Tahar, 27, who emigrated with her family to America from Syria and was working as an Arabic interpreter, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The Defense Department declined to name three wounded service members. The attack, 
brings the number of American service members killed in action in the anti-ISIS fighting in Iraq and Syria to 16. Wirtz is the first known Defense Department civilian killed in action in what has been called Operation Inherent Resolve since 2014. Service members were at a restaurant near a crowded market for a meeting with local leaders. U.S. Central Command said after the attack, Members of the Manbai Military Council, which has controlled the area since it was liberated from ISIS in 2016, were also reported among the roughly 16 people killed in the blast. The attack appears to be the work of ISIS, a defense official said. The official stressed that the investigation into the attack was ongoing and the Pentagon had yet to reach a final conclusion of the party responsible. President Donald Trump declared ISIS defeated in Syria and announced he would withdraw all American forces from the country in the near future. The Pentagon has begun withdrawing equipment from Syria, but roughly 2,000 troops remain on the ground there. Vice President Mike Pence said at the Pentagon that the attack would not change the administration's determination to leave Syria. We will honor the memory of the fallen, he said. And their families and our armed forces should know their sacrifice will only steal our resolve that we begin to bring our troops home. We will do so in a way that ensures that the remnants of ISIS will never be able to reestablish the evil and murderous caliphate. Shannon Kent, Rambo on the outside. There was pretty much nothing Navy Chief Petty Officer Shannon Kent couldn't handle, her friends and family said. Kent outsmarted many of those around her, knew more than a half dozen languages, and was a wife and mother of two young boys. She was a cancer survivor, a world traveler, deployed multiple times for the military, lobbied on Capitol Hill for new protections for service members, and was slated to start a graduate program this year. That drive for Kent ended at the age of 35. She was so loving and such a worthy person. The smartest person I knew, Rambo on the outside, but a girly girl at heart. She was such a badass woman, her sister-in-law Kay Kent said. It's so tragic that she's gone. It is the nightmare phone call you worry about receiving, but I never thought I would get. Kent signed up for the military shortly after high school, and her husband was also in the military, Kay Kent said. We've been through so much in the last 10, 15 years in the military. You think you paid your dues and buried your friends and you make it, she said. But that was so false. Slowly but surely, people got word where they ate lunch, and then horrible people make decisions. In a statement, the Navy said, Kent enlisted in December of 2003, and graduated from language training at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, in October of 2005. Her awards include two Joint Service Commendation Medals, a Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medal, Army Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, Joint Meritorious Unit Medal, and the Iraq Campaign Medal, among others. She is believed to be the first female U.S. service member killed in action since December of 2015, 
and the first killed in action in the anti-ISIS campaign. When you are highly ranked as a Navy linguist officer, you put a stereotype in someone. But she was such a warm mother and funny and caring and charismatic, Kate Kent said. I got to know her more. I didn't understand how she could be in the Navy and be so sweet and kind and beautiful. That has changed that stereotype for me. You can be a multidimensional woman and be whatever you want to be. Kent, who grew up in a service-oriented family, loved horses and learned Spanish so she could communicate with workers at the stables, Kay Kent recalled. In high school, Kent was suddenly interested in French and started learning it within a few short months. At a wedding they attended together once, Kay saw Shannon speaking to a woman in a language that she had never heard before. After so many years of serving in the military, Kent said her family fell into a false sense of security, that Shannon Kent and her husband had already been through so much, that they were safe. After all, Shannon Kent was due to start a stringent graduate program, she said. Shannon Kent had just deployed to Syria in late 2018, following Trump's announcement that troops would be withdrawn. The Kent family assumed Shannon would get moved to a new post in the Middle East. To make it this far, we are so shocked that this could happen, Kay said. On Facebook, as news of Kate's, uh, Kay Kent's death spread, Navy chiefs within the small but secretive cryptographic intelligence community char- changed their profile photos to a Navy insignia with a black band. Many of them expressed their disbelief at Kent's death, saying she had more combat experience than most in the Navy. Cassandra Nolan, who described Kent as one of her best friends, said she was indescribably amazing person and leaves behind two sons under the age of five. I love you, Shannon, Nolan wrote. You made the world a better place and you deserved the world in return. I'm heartbroken. Jonathan Farmer, a true warrior. Army Chief Warrant Officer 2, Jonathan Farmer, an athletic Green Beret, was described by friends and family members as a good person, a good man, good son, good father, good husband. The soldier's father, Duncan Farmer, told the Palm Beach Post, their hometown newspaper, a good friend. Farmer joined the Army in March of 25 and completed training to become a Special Forces Engineer Sergeant in 2007, after which he was assigned to the 5th Group, where he remained throughout his career. He earned his commission as warrant officer in 2016 and was then selected to serve as an Assistant Detachment Commander. He had previously served the combat, five combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, arriving earlier in Syria for his sixth deployment. Duncan Farmer said his family was aware his son was serving in Syria, but they were not certain where. An athlete, Farmer excelled in basketball, playing for his high school, the Palm Beach, Florida private school, the Benjamin School, and later in college at Bowdoing College in Maine, where he was a team captain, according to the Palm Beach Post. It is with tremendously heavy hearts that we share the news that the Benjamin School alumni 
John Farmer was killed in Syria, the school said in the statement of the 1999 graduate. A true warrior, John is fondly remembered as a buccaneer with a big heart and commitment to service. Farmer was not the only member of his family in the military. His older brother is also serving in the Army, the local newspaper reported. He is survived by his wife and their four children, according to the Army. During his career, he earned awards, including the Bronze Star Medal with two oak leaf clusters, the Purple Heart, the Army Accommodation Medal with a Combat C device, the Army Accommodation Medal with two oak leaf clusters, an Army Achievement Medal, and a Combat Infantry Badge. He was the kind of person you want to be around. You want your kids to be around, Kathy White, a longtime neighbor and close friend of the farmers, told the Palm Beach Post. She added, he was good at everything. Scott Wirtz, he absolutely loved his work. Energetic and adventure-seeking, Wirtz knew from a young age he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Family members said, on their way to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware to receive his remains. He never really was into swimming, but he wanted to join the Navy, and he especially wanted to be a SEAL, his mother, Sandy Wirtz, said. Like most of his other goals in life, Wirtz accomplished that objective. He spent most of his Navy career from 1998 to 2005 assigned to Coronado, California-based SEAL Team 5, where he specialized as a sniper. He served combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and also deployed to locations in Africa, the Philippines, and South Korea, according to his mother. After leaving the service in 2005, he spent years working for military contracting groups before joining the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2017 as an operations support specialist charged with overseeing operations to collect human intelligence. He served three deployments in the Middle East in that role, according to his TIA biography. During his tenure in the Navy, he earned awards including the Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal, two Good Conduct Medals, and qualified as an expert marksman. He was awarded the Secretary of Defense Medal for the Global Tour on Terrorism as a TIA civilian, according to the agencies. Family members constantly worried Wirtz, who they called Scotty, during his time in the SEALs and as a civilian. They knew he was in Syria, but took comfort in knowing how well prepared he was for his job in the war-torn country. He was always happy, and he absolutely loved his work, said his mother, admitting that she often worried about his safety. He'd always say to me, don't worry, Mom, I'm well-trained. I always carried that with me. When he was not deployed, Wirt spent his, most of his time traveling and had visited each of the continents except Antarctica, said David Wirtz, his father. He was especially a fond of Thailand, where he had a home and spent much of his downtime, and Brazil, where he trained as a mixed martial arts fighter. He showed athleticism and ingenuity from a young age. He played football in high school, and was a talented skateboarder, his mother said. We came home one day, and he had built a skateboarding ramp in our backyard, Sandy recalled. 
It wasn't something we had expected. Later in high school, Wirtz completely rebuilt his Jeep, a skill his parents were surprised to learn he had discovered. He appeared to be the first DOD civilian killed in combat since the anti-ISIS fighting began, according to a review of Pentagon data. It's a stark reminder of the dangerous missions we conduct for the nation and of the threats we work hard to mitigate, DIA Director Lieutenant General Robert P. Ashley said in a statement. As President Lincoln described in the fields at Gettysburg, this officer gave the last full measure of devotion. Jack Wilson, a close family friend who served in the Air Force and regularly discussed military service with Wirtz, said the former SEAL was especially proud of his service and working with his SEAL teammates. As an ex-warrior, I'll just say, I know Scotty was a warrior, Wilson said. He was out to do his job, and he did it well. Scotty died doing what he loved doing. And that's the only good thing that comes out of this. He loved what he did. Today's show is dedicated to these three warriors. Army Chief Warrant Officer, second grade, Jonathan R. Farmer, Navy SEAL veteran Scott A. Woods, and Senior Chief Cryptologist Technician, Shannon Kent, is dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into its magnificent future we have ahead. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency workers. We dedicate to them this song, Amazing grace. May God bless each and every one.
right, and we're back. You're here listening to Seven Cents here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media Lone Star, Daily News up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick, Annie, who is at this moment co-host list. Ron Edwards will be joining us at the last hour of the show. So I see a volunteer up in the chat room. So feel free to call in. If you are listening in the studio and you do want to participate with a question or comment, uh, please remember if you dial in to press one. That way I know that you want to raise your hand and say, Annie, I want to talk. I want to say something. So feel free to do that. Uh, We've got our first guest is not calling in until the top of the hour. Um, So I just want to go over a couple of items that came up in the news, which I thought was very interesting. And I do see people popping up in the chat room. Please remember to press one uh, if you want to join in the conversation. Um, this was up in Politico, and I didn't see it anywhere. I was listening to the news earlier before coming on air. Uh, but Donald Trump's longtime executive assistant, Mel- Madeline, let me get the name correctly, Madeline Westerout, abruptly resigned from the White House. It looks like there's going to be a little bit of sh- shakeup in the staff. She was the president's executive secretary, and uh, she seemed to have been overstepping her authority and stepping on some toes. Uh, Consequently, uh, she has resigned. So we're going to expect a little bit of a shakeup in the White House staff. Um, This is according to, let's see, from Politico, it reads, President Donald Trump's longtime executive assistant, Madeline Westerout, abruptly resigned the White House on Thursday, just yesterday. After coming under scrutiny for sharing intimate details about the president's family with reporters, according to two sources familiar with the move. Now, that's a huge big no. I'm sorry. You're the executive. You're the secretary to anyone. You don't talk about your boss's private details with anyone unless you're under oath in court. I'm sorry. It just does not get done. In the past six months, Wester Out has tried to expand the boundaries of her job to encompass a broader set of tasks and to include foreign travel, said one advisor close to the White House, who suggested Wester Out had tried to act like a de facto chief of staff. This irked several White House officials, uh, said cabinet secretaries, who thought she should stick to her primary task of serving as the president's personal secretary with a desk just outside the Oval Office. Um, this is, it was the final straw, so eventually she was asked to step out. Um, so this is, this, is, this is something new. And, uh, yeah, I do see your hand up in the room. Let me just get my little computer to work. I'm not accustomed to doing this on my own. Anyone that knows the show knows. I'll ask questions. I'll lead in. I am not someone to go on and on and on because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. But joining me as a guest co-host for the show, we have Chief. Good afternoon, Chief. How are you doing today? Well, in the immortal words of Joe Walsh, I can't complain, but sometimes I still do. You know, like I said, there's so much to talk about in, in today. But, you know, here you have someone that is the executive secretary to the president of the United States. 
and you think you would covet that job so well that you would not go stepping on other people's toes enough to piss them off and make you resign your position. You know, would you hire a secretary that has a big mouth? Would you do that? I wouldn't. Uh, no, but you know, I, I you know I'm not really that that up on the story. I hadn't heard about it before right now, so I can't give a whole lot of opinion on that. Um, just for the people who might be listening, probably should introduce myself, don't you think? Because some of the people, Absolutely. some of the people know who I am, some don't. Absolutely, go ahead. Does that make sense? Jump in. Well, I mean. That makes sense. I, I, I go, yeah, I just, uh, you know, Annie called me chief, and that's kind of what I go by. But just to assuage anybody's fears, I am not going full Elizabeth Warren on you because <laughs> I am a retired I am a retired Navy chief petty officer. So unlike the senator from Massachusetts, I earned the right to use that title, <laughs> and it amuses me to do so. Um, you know, you're uh, not and I, <laughs> I am no, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a real chief, not a fake chief. So, <laughs> just and and I, I do a little show here on on Blog Talk Radio on Wednesdays, uh, just thirty minutes. Don't want to waste much of your time. Just my rants and raves, simple facts of life. It's on Wednesday, three p.m. Pacific, six p.m. Eastern. I'm not sure what that is in Saudi Arabia. So that's that's who I am. I just want to comment because our our friend Bigfoot in the chat room uh, was posting on there. Uh, Joe Walsh, who we've had on the show a couple of years back, is trying to primary Donald Trump. Uh, He stuck his foot in his mouth with some of his racist tweets. Uh, he was. He was. Not only is he a mu- musician, he was a radio host, and he did serve one term in Congress. So, yes, he is a one-term Congress critter. However, is this when the same Joe Walsh? The, yeah. That I, I, he thought lost was, his I thought it was a different Joe Walsh. I'm talking about the Joe Walsh from the Eagles and uh, oh, the right, James Gang. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a different one. Yeah, but yeah. the other Joe That's, Walsh, yes, he was a Joe, Joe, radio um, yeah. host and congressman. Yeah, well, I I don't think that's the Joe Walsh I was quoting. That's just one of my standard "How are you doing?" answers. I have a <laughs> I have a few of them. So. <laughs> yeah, but yeah funny, you remember though, the song? Life's 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 been good to me so far. That's my favorite line oh, yes. from the song. I can't complain, but sometimes I still do. <laughs> Life's been good to me, especially if you live here in the United States of America. Life can't get any better than living here in the USA. Uh, I, I want to bring up something that uh, came across the news also. Uh, uh, Congressman, um, I'm going to say Clyburn, no, uh, Cunning, uh, not Cunningham. Oh, good Lord. I just had a major brain fart. Oh, jeez. Uh, the Baltimore area, he just got criticized by Trump because his district in Baltimore uh, is one of the worst districts 
in the nation. Elijah Why Cummings. I... Uh, you're talking about Elijah Cummings. Thank you. Elijah Cummings. Thank you. Yeah, that, well, that's yes, what I'm here that's, for. That's it. What you know, to fan away, to fan away the smell from your brain farts. That's why I'm here. <laughs> well, I don't know if anyone caught this in the news, uh, but his staff went down to the border, and it was a scheduled tour of the border. Now, come on. You've got law enforcement down there. You've got uh, Department of Homeland Security. You've got uh, ICE. Uh, you've got the local cops down there. So when you go to the border, you know, you're interrupting their law enforcement duties. So they schedule these visits so they can be escorted around the facilities and shown everything, you know, just to make sure that you're safe. You know, these guys know the dangers of the area that you're walking into, and they want to make sure that you get back home in one piece. They don't want you wandering around where you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. I'm sorry, you're dealing with a criminal element at the border. And so what you say, oh, the only crime they committed is that they crossed the border. That's still a crime. You've got drug traffickers. You've got human smugglers. You've got rapists. You've got drug dealers. You've got MS-13. And so you wander off. You are, are not only risking your own life, but you're putting the safety of the others tasked with protecting you at risk. So that's why they schedule these tours. And they have you go into areas where they, they, they want to show you everything that's going on, open transparency, but they also want to make sure that you walk out of there safe. So his staff went down there, and not only did they fail to show up on time, they were supposed to do a 45-minute tour of one facility. They went well over an hour and then refused to leave. And they failed to show up at another facility where these law enforcement staff, Department of Homeland Security and ICE, stood there with their thumbs up their butts waiting for them to show up. So consequently, um, this is from the Daily Caller. They were kicked out of the congressional trip. And this was to Nevada. After one of these staff members bullied a Department of Interior employee, you know, not only did they fail to show up at one location and overstay their welcome at another, they were rude and obnoxious to the individuals that were tasked with protecting them. This is coming out of the office of Elijah Cumming that has the worst district, not in just Baltimore, I think in the nation. Is this not just showing the arrogance of the left? Well, ah. Uh... I mean, call me call me cynical, but I just not quite sure that this was really a trip to provide the eminent uh, distinguished gentleman from Maryland the information he needs to do his job. I think it was kind of a uh, photo op. Um, I. It was, they're trying to set somebody up. I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe it was all on the up and up, but uh, no. Well, you know, what What gets me is, is that he sends his staff to go to these facilities to tour them. He doesn't go himself. He does not go himself. 
You know, well, I mean, does sure this, this remind you of when AMC went to the border and there was no one there? <laughs> There's no there there? I'm, I'm sure the uh, congressman had more important things to do, like, you know, soliciting bribes and uh, all those, you know, fundraising and all those things that congressmen seem to spend most of their time doing. Uh, so, you know, that, that that's what the peons are for, you know, to go out and, and you know, harass the uh, other, you know, the law enforcement officers, because that's, you know, that's their job. So, I mean, I, the congressman certainly doesn't have time to actually do his own work. Not only does it show the arrogance of his staff and his office and of the congressman himself, not only do they abuse the members out there, but it also shows the utter disdain that they have for law enforcement. You, you've got cops being attacked in New York City as well as, of course, the rest of the nation. Uh, and here it just extends now to the border security officers that are down there, whichever agency they are walking, working with, the utter disdain that they have for anyone in law enforcement. It, this is a disease. Well, it's they're just like I said. They're 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 trying to score points with the people that they think they can score points with. It, you know, there's nothing real about it. It's all a show, and it's a production. And there's just occurred to me as no, uh, it all makes sense that Hollywood is so much on their side because. It's all a production to tell a story to the people who are willing to buy a ticket to hear this story. That's what it's all about. Or maybe I'm just talking crazy. Of course I'm talking crazy (laughs) because that's what I do. You know, when you you watch some of these people that are on the left, people like Elijah Cummings, uh, like Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, the gap-filled Joe Biden. Yeah, you got to wonder, is it really a mental illness to be a leftist? You really have to wonder. And I, I think there was a medical study uh, on the brain activity of individuals, those that are conservative, Christian conservatives, and those that are, are an extreme left, and there is a marked difference in brain activity. So I'm not saying this, you know, as if it's coming off the top of my head. It has actually been, I think it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. If I'm wrong, someone, you know, let me know in the chat room. But I do know it was definitely a medical study. And not only did that, they found that those of us that are Christian conservatives, are happier. We have less mental illness. We are more prosperous in life. So there has to be something about whether or not it's a mental illness. You know, I'm just I, throwing it out there, guys. Well, I'm just wondering. You're saying that the uh, they tried to did they actually find any mental activity on uh, on the leftists? <laughs> I mean, I always kind of thought they were. Basically comatose, brain dead, uh, 
Well, (laughs) talk about comatose and brain dead. Uh, This individual is a gift that keeps on giving, and it's like every day there's at least one or two stories that pop up on this one individual. Representative Ilyan Omar. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know where to start with this one, with the fact that she's having an affair on her husband, her second husband. She's having an affair with her staff or her advisor. Uh, She's going into her campaign funds illegally to pay for his trips. She's a Muslim, and it's against Sharia law for her to be <laughs> having an affair. Yeah, I, 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 just, I, just, you know, I just read that somewhere in, in, in a, a few minutes ago. Australia, she's stoned to death at this point. But you're, yeah, you're she, the latest. She, I, she would be she would be buried up to her neck in sand and have people throw stones at her head if she was back in her country of birth but we don't do that here but she still complains about america and how you know she wants to bring those laws here so that she can be executed now if that's not brain dead, I don't know what is. <laughs> but the Jews are the problem with her. Annie, I, I, I seem to have you laughing more than Curtis does. I mean, uh, am I doing something right or something wrong here? Well, if anyone's wondering where Curtis is, he had a, a family matter he had to attend to. Uh, so he is up in the... I think in the Philadelphia area today. And so he was unable to call in because he's dealing with a family uh, uh, issue. Um, but here's Ilian Omar, who lectures everyone about being on the higher moral ground, having an affair. She's married, and the person she's having an affair with is married. <laughs> and yet she's a devout Muslim. Matter of fact, I don't think there's any religion, but there probably is. Someone will probably come up with it. But in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, or whatever, the vast majority of religions, today's religions, view infidelity as a huge no-no. But this is her latest (laughs) brainstorm. She has called on the United States to have the U.N., handle our border crisis. <laughs> Does anyone see a problem with this? I mean, because you know the United Nations does such a great job at handling everything, right? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, she, uh, the the, the uh, representative from Minnesota seems to uh, she just she wants to change America from something that works not perfectly but generally works and bring it to uh the level of Mogadishu which doesn't work at all i i don't understand her logic well because well, i am she only, was only she partially dead she was before an audience uh, talking about the issue of immigration, and this is the statement she makes. She says, quote, we should do what any other country does, 
by dealing with this situation in a serious way. So we have to bring in the United Nations High Commissioner on Refugees, an agency that has the expertise and training to handle the massive flow of refugees humanely. Now, here we've got a problem number one. She's calling them refugees. There is no such thing as an economic refugee. You are a religious refugee because you are a Jew being persecuted by, oh, say, Nazis or radical Islam. Uh, you are a refugee because you are fighting a communist or a socialist government and they're threatening to kill your butt. That's a refugee. A political or religious individual is a refugee. However, there's no such thing as an economic refugee. But she's calling them refugees. Now, wait a minute. Now, the High Commissioner on Refugees, isn't that the very same one that has illegally, against our Constitution, picked up refugees from various nations such as Somalia and dumped them in American cities against the governor of that city, the uh, congressional – not governor of the city, governor of that state, I apologize – the congressional legislative body of that state, the mayor or whoever the leader is of that municipality, without their permission and without their knowledge and without vetting them, dumping them in these cities, such as here in South Carolina, Greenville, Spartanburg, dumping these refugees that haven't been uh, uh, vetted for disease, for criminal activity, and then saying, oh, by the way, you must provide them with social services, everything from food, housing, clothing, medical aid, uh, 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 tra uh, translators, you know, second language translators. Get, you have to use your resources. We're not going to help you. We're just going to take these refugees and dump them on you. And this is her answer to the Porto crisis. That's working out real well, Chief, isn't it? Uh, well, okay, refugees, yes, there are legitimate refugees from if places are involved in uh, there's war going on, natural disasters, there are legitimate uh, causes for someone to be a refugee. However, comma, I don't claim to be a really expert on this, but as I understand it, the general international conventions are that you should be allowed, if you are a legitimate refugee, to cross one border to get to the, an area of safety, which means if you are, if there is a war in Mexico or a war or, you know, in Canada or a hurricane or whatever, well, by international uh, conventions, you should be allowed to come into the United States for temporary refuge but if you're not a refugee from mexico and i don't mean somebody from guatemala or honduras who's traveling through mexico i mean an actual mexican citizen or a canadian citizen if you're not one of those you have no business seeking refuge in the united states because that's the only way you can cross one border to seek refuge. So the United Nations deciding where refugees should go, uh, it does, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, we, 
Are you familiar with my idea of how we should deal with the United Nations? Uh, are you familiar with that? Because I, I, I have it all figured out. The United should Nations simply, should be uh, shuttered. Said, shuttered, said, uh, out, let them go to Geneva, let them go to Paris or wherever. I don't care. We should be out of the United Nations. We should demand our money back. We should shutter the entire building and do like Donald Trump said. Turn it into a really beautiful uh, housing, uh, not housing, but apartment complex, a condo complex. Make some money off of it, the city of New York. Get these diplomats out of here that run traffic lights, park in front of hydrants, that we could not ticket their cars. Let the city of New York make some money off of it. Let the state of New York make some money off of it. Let the United States IRS get their taxes from that building, and let's kick them out. That's my idea. Well, I, I, I'm not – I have a – it's really simple. I mean, I agree with you. I think the city of New York should send in their building inspectors. I mean, that that U.N. complex has been around there for a long time. I'm – sure they can find some reason to condemn the build. I mean, and that's some very high-priced real estate, but the United States being very wealthy and uh, wanting to do the right thing, I think we should uh, build them a new, big, shiny facility. I mean, we have a president who knows something about building shiny facilities, and we should put it, oh, I think Fairbanks, Alaska would be a really good place to headquarter the United Nations. It's kind of a major uh, air air uh, corridor. Their airport gets along. So Fairbanks, Alaska would be a really good place for the United Nations, and I'm sure all the diplomats would really enjoy it there. What do you think? I actually don't want to upset the people in Fairbanks, Alaska, with <laughs> tasking with such a load on them. Oh, you I know. know. We could probably it, send them it, to an it, Arctic it, coast, <laughs> somewhere that the international it, it, community. <laughs> and you want to freeze them, but the North... send them to an Arctic coast. <laughs> if we now, you see, if we sent the if we sent the United Nations to the North Pole, you know, there is a town right outside of Fairbanks called North Pole. That's where all the letters to Santa Claus go. But um, if we sent if we sent the United Nations to North Pole, then Santa Claus would, uh, you know, put us all on the naughty list. I'm sure. So maybe it's not such a good idea. <laughs> like I said, we've had some guests on the show that are from Alaska, but we never want to put such a burden on friends of ours. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Yeah. You and know, again, you know, I, I, we, we could help out the polar bears because, I mean, hmm, diplomat. Yeah, here, we need to feed the polar bears. How about some diplomat from Upper Slobovia or something like that? <laughs> that that's, a, well, that's good. Or better yet, or better yet, they, they are so beholden to Iran or Beijing, or Moscow, let them take over dealing with these diplomats, the prima donna diplomats out there. And when they walk out and the women walk out and they're not wearing a burqa and they get stormed by these Sharia police, let them deal with it. That's even a better idea, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. That's the thing. I think they want to be, the UN wants to be in New York because it's New York, which, I mean, I'm sure is not nearly as classy as it was when you were living there, but still in all, it's New York. It's the bright lights. It's the big city. It's the big apple. So, you know, that's where they want to be just because. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, well, I haven't I, spent I, much time I, I, in New York. I have been there. You ever hear the term bucket list? You ever hear the term bucket list? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, yes. Well, before, before I'd ever heard that term, I'm talking back in 1988, I realized there are certain things that you would like to do once before you die and never do again. And I think in in uh, 1987, 1988, I spent New Year's Eve in Times Square, about 50 feet away from Dick Clark. And that was cool. And man, I would never want to do anything like that again. What a zoo. But that's when I realized the term buck, you know, there are things you want to do once and never again. Well, if I remember correctly, 1987 and 88, about that time, I may have been walking a footpost on the Williamsburg Bridge, or was that July Fourth in in New York City? So I was on, I was up on a footpost somewhere back in eighty seven eighty eight. Uh, I just want to remind people because I see people in the studio. If you do want to participate in the conversation, please remember to press the one on your keypad. That'll signal to me that you're raising your hand and want to participate. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Springer. You know what I'm going to say next. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, is the radio chick, Annie. And my guest co-host at, at this time is a fellow BTR host, Chief. Uh, and Chief, uh, tell people where they can find your show and uh, where, where you're at. Uh, I the address is blogtalkradio.com slash qmcusn. That's the address. Uh, if that makes no sense, I've been using that for years. Qmcusn stands for Chief Quartermaster United States Navy. But uh, this or search simple facts of life in Blog Talk uh, Radio. Uh, I do just a short show. Very fast-moving, not a lot of BS in there. Just say what I have to say. Occasionally have guests on. We'll take calls if I get any, but I usually don't. And uh, it's uh, Wednesdays. I do it 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. And you can also, I occasionally write on my written blog, which is qmcusn.wordpress.com. And that's what I, I occasionally write on there. And that also has links to my uh, Facebook uh, page and uh, my radio show and uh, YouTube channel, which I haven't put anything on in years. But there it is. So that's who I am and where you can find me. Well, just want to let people know that if you are trying to reach me over on Facebook and YouTube, I am still having technical difficulties in getting the sound correct. I will work on it. I, I promise. So, so one of these days, I'll get it back up on there. Um, 
want to again thank everyone that's sitting there in our chat room here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, as well as up in the studio. It's always fun to have people around. Um, we should have our first guest calling in in a few minutes. Um, but here's here's something else um, I think, Chief, that you'll have fun with because <laughs> it stinks, <laughs> pun intended. You know the California, a sanctuary state, as well as um, uh, Washington uh, and Oregon areas. They, they've got all these sanctuary cities, uh, as, as well as a rise in homelessness. Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, massive amounts of Americans, American civilians, and a lot of them are veterans, and a growing number are female veterans that are now homeless, living in these tent cities in posh areas. And uh, you know what's going to happen? There's drug paraphernalia discarded on the sidewalk. There's all types of trash, human feces, public urination. They've got a major, major uh, sanitation as well as health problem in these cities. So you've got people in San Francisco and L.A. doing YouTube videos saying, I am closing my business. I am leaving the state of California. We can't deal with this anymore. The the government that we've elected is not handling the situation, and this is a major health risk to everyone. So how we have a Seattle official, and this was up on Gateway Pundit, council member Larry Gossett says power washing the sidewalks bring up images of using hoses against civil rights activists. So he's saying that if you want to clean this crap, literally crap, off the, the sidewalks, Using a hose, it's racist. Chief? Uh, uh, Some things, I mean, I try to be as ridiculous as possible, but I can't top that one. I mean, that just is is totally ridiculous. What's going on is everyone is trying to posture a... The cities, the leftist-controlled cities are trying, and I I live near one of these leftist-controlled cities, uh, in, in case people don't know. I live in the, in the outskirts of Portland, Oregon. I'm standing out on the street in front of my nice little Leave it to Beaver uh, neighborhood right now, but uh, I, I'm originally from Los Angeles. I'm I I know all about this. I spent many years driving a truck, and I know Seattle, been to San Francisco. San Francisco used to be such a beautiful place. Uh, I didn't mind the hippies. I didn't even mind the gay people. But the leftists, they ruined everything. Uh, it's, It's totally nuts, but it's all about they're trying to uh, pander to a certain people on an emotional level. So if you can bring up anything that might be called racist, no matter how much of a stretch it is, they're going to call it racist. I mean, power, it looks like. I mean, it's totally ridiculous, but it's what they do. They have to keep people focused that everything in America has to be about uh, racial or group identity, 
and they have to pit one group against the other. Uh, this is right out of Vladimir Lenin. It's, it's what they do. Uh, it, you know, Saul Alinsky, the whole, the whole thing. It's just pit people against each other. It's like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched, you know, professional wrestling. I did many, many decades ago, but they would have a battle royal. And the last man standing is the winner. So the idea is to sort of stand, stand back, let everyone destroy themselves. I mean... That was what that was what Charles Manson's plan was. He wanted the reason he committed those murders back many decades ago. Uh, I just happened to be thinking of Charles Manson because of a comment I put on a Facebook thing I can get into. But his idea was the whole helter skelter, and he thought if he could kill some people, convince. And the world would think it was a racially motivated crime, and that would start a riot. Yep. And every—that's well, that, what he was trying well, to do. Absolutely, Chief. Uh, we do have our guest in, so hang on, Chief, and we'll bring in uh, this gentleman. Is the founder of Bikers for Trump. Uh, he is a fellow South Carolinian running for the South Carolina congressional seat out of District 1 here. Uh, he's going into a heavily <laughs> dense – well, actually not heavily. It's not as bad as when Mark Sanford ran for the seat the second time where there were 16 people running, almost like the Democratic presidential primary. Let's welcome aboard Chris Cox. Good afternoon, Chris. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Oh, uh, thank you for running for office. And like I said, the field is starting to get a little heavy out there. Um, we've had Mike Covert on a uh, previous show. We've got Katie Landing coming on uh, next week. I'm trying to give all of y'all you know, a great voice out there. Uh, and we have to get someone, someone that is a true conservative, someone that will back Donald Trump. And you are a perfect person for that. As I said, you are the founder of Bikers for Trump, which you founded, I believe, back in 2015. Am I correct? Am I getting that year right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Now, it, it, to let people know who you are, uh, if people remember when we had the government shut down under the Obama administration and the parks, the uh, World War II Memorial and other parks in the D.C. were shuttered, uh, you stepped into it. <laughs> you you made national news. Yes, ma'am. That was uh, quite a polarizing uh, time for the nation as a result of that government shutdown. Um, it was actually the number one trending story in the world for two and a half days. Um, Australia, China, Russia, you name it. It was about the only good story coming out of the States at the time. And so also I stuck around after that and I petitioned Congress that we should never allow this to happen again. And as a result, I was able to work with Congressman Darrell Issa and develop a bill that would prevent any politician or administration from using an open air war memorial for political posturing, retaliation or gain. And a year later, we introduced H.R. 1836 and it was introduced with bipartisan support and then later introduced as H.R. 4951. And I'll tell you real quick that the bill reads that the Secretary of Interior and the Secretary of Agriculture 
will enter into agreement with state and local governments to provide for the continued operation of an open-air war memorial, public lands, or parks during a lapse of appropriations. And so this was done just really on behalf of the veterans, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it was quite an experience. Absolutely. You, you came to be known not only just for the bikers for Trump, but they were calling you lawnmower man because you stayed down there and you made sure the grounds were taken care of. Yes, ma'am. I think it was 16 or 17 days. But, you know, what a lot of people don't talk about is before that, I cleaned over probably five, six hundred trash cans. I lost count. You know, when the government shut down, I went out there at first. I w- my job, I thought, was going to be making sure that nobody vandalized our war memorials. So for the first three nights from about 9 o'clock at night until about six, five, six in the morning, I would just patrol around um, with my cell phone ready to call. You remember shortly before that, a woman had thrown green paint on the Lincoln Memorial. And so I just wanted to make sure that nobody vandalized the World War II, the Korean uh, War Memorial, or the Vietnam Wall. The third day, all the trash cans started overflowing. And there would be up to two or three extra tr- uh, trash bags worth of trash at the bottom of it. And the one that caught my attention was right in front of the Vietnam Wall. And I didn't do anything. And when I got back almost to Lorton, Virginia, where I stay, and I was, I was ashamed of myself, I, I got back up. I went and bought some trash bags. I went down there, and uh, it was probably a good 10 days of picking up trash until I was able to get it under control. And after I had the trash under control, I decided to cut the grass and Apparently, that's what got everybody's attention, and apparently the tweet went around the world in about a minute and a half, and um, the next day was Good Morning America to Today Show, Unknown Man Cuts Grass was Carrying a South Carolina Flag, and so that's kind of how it started. Well, you have the energy, and now you have the national attention to run for a congressional seat and get rid of uh, Joe Beercan Cunningham. I'm not going to stop calling him Joe Beercan. Um, matter of fact, <laughs> I had offered this to one of the other candidates and said, use this as your slogan. They haven't done it. Maybe you will. Is that Beer Can Joe has got to go. How do you like that? I do like that. Um, you know, when I, I built Bikers for Trump, it took about 90 days before it was a political phenomenon. The bikers have never before been harnessed as a demographic in a presidential campaign. But I'm a firm believer in taking and holding that high ground. I don't do a lot of finger pointing. I'm not into shouting and yelling at people, the opponents, you know, on the other side. So um, I'm really hoping I can uh, just maintain a very clean and positive message that will resonate with the low country, explain to them that, you know, unlike uh, Joe Cunningham and my opponents, I have a very meaningful relationship with the president and I can put I can have a seat at that table. And, and, you know, for instance, when we're talking about off, offshore drilling, um, you know, I, I've been in the White House about nine times. I've been in the Oval Office. The president's called me. So it would be hard to have his ear to explain to him that this is not a good option for the low country. And I've already had very, very other conversations that, that I've, I've explained in Washington that I'm not going to go into the low country and be anybody's robot. I'm not going to be anybody's puppet. I'm going to do what's best for the low country. And my number one job will be leveraging these friendships, these relationships that I have to bring federal funds back to the low country so we can handle things like these flooding neighborhoods and, and these crumbling bridges. You know, um, you're, 
uh, the teeth in backwards. I apologize. Uh, Congressman sure. Mark Stanford, you know, he's a friend of mine. And towards the end of his second term as our congressman, uh, I began to find that he was going off on a tangent in some of the issues. And one of the issues he had, because we are prone for hurricanes, we've got Dorian coming up off the coast of Florida right now uh, that we expect to hit Florida uh, Monday night, Tuesday, and it should be up around here. Or I think they said around the 5th we should have it down to a tropical storm here in South Carolina. So we're prone to flooding. We are prone to the storms. And he came up with a brilliant program that FEMA should buy up all the properties that are in flood-prone areas. Do you see a problem with that? Well, how would FEMA purchase uh, down the, the streets in downtown Charleston where it may even flood some of the worst floods I've ever seen? I've seen them almost to my knee right there on Market Street. So, um, you know, as far as how we're going to handle that, I'm going to have to wrap my head around it. I'm going to find people <laughs> like that have, that have that they have tried to identify ways to fix problems and maybe they didn't work. Then I'll identify people who have been on the cutting edge of trying to trying to identify how to fix these problems. And I'll try to marry the marriage them both together. But you see, the one thing you got to remember is I'm not a politician. I'm a blue collar guy that happens to know how to get things done. I know how to roll my sleeves up and get my hands dirty. So, you know, moving forward, I've got to be able to just have the ear of the people and I've got to be able to use the information that I get from them to go to Washington and bring back this money and let some people that are experts in this figure out exactly how we're going to do it. Well, you know, you've got a fantastic website. It's your name, chriscox2020.com, uh, Cox, C-O-X, chriscox2020.com. And I, I like it. You know, it's, it's, it's a good website. And you put down, you know, what you think the priorities are. And, um, one of the, one of the uh, things I like about it is that you want to help strengthen the economy, uh, and I found it odd that the vast majority of economic uh, economists uh, that have been predicting a recession and are fighting Trump on his uh, his oh good lord I am having some major brain farts his policies are Democrats, and every last one of them are against him with these tariffs that he's got with China and what he is doing with Iran, uh, tamping down on them by saying, hey, listen, we have a problem here and it needs to be fixed. So you've got farmers in Iowa pitching a bitch because they're not getting all their crops sold. Would you be in alignment with what Trump is doing to strengthen our economy and continue with these tariffs and sanctions? I certainly will, and let me explain to you why. We've been getting taken advantage of for many, many years. The president is trying to give us an even playing field, and in order to do this, he's going to have to push back and buckle down on them. And so as they start to feel the pressure, these things are going to lighten up, and they're going to get back to – to being profitable for all of these companies. I have a friend, a local friend who owns a a big carpet cleaning business and he goes in when there's floods. And he was complaining to me about the other day about the price of his materials that are just really skyrocketed right now. And so I explained to him, he's got to be patient because he's going to end up making more money than he's losing right now. But we've got to give our country a very sustainable game plan moving forward. 
you know, I'm very confident that Donald Trump's going to win in 2020. What are we going to do after that? If we don't harness this message about putting America first and keeping America first, then we're going to go back to where we were before Donald Trump got here. And that's why it's important to me, and I think many of your listeners, that we identify people who understand putting America first is the direction that this country wants to go. And so, um, you know, moving forward, I will be able to support the president on these things. But unlike a lot of congressional members who sit back in their cozy chairs behind their desks and don't want to get their hands dirty, I'll be more like Ron DeSantis was. When you saw him out there, every chance he got, he was in the face of the Democrats. He was pushing back. He wasn't going to take any crap. And uh, and neither will I. And I'm going to be a loud, strong voice, not only for the low country, but for the president and for the and. For all the other patriots, you know, as representing the low country, you know, we, we got to be able to work with the, De- the South Carolina delegation. And as far as we see pushing the low country forward, we'd like to see us pushing other parts of the state forward, too. And we have to have a marriage there. We have to be on the same on the same page. And so to answer your question, yes, ma'am, I think the president's in the right direction. I think that we have more jobs across the board for, um, for, for the African-American community. Um, he has more women in the senior positions than the other administration. And we could go back and forth and back and forth. But the one thing that we can count on is the Democrats pushing back. And if it wasn't for double um, or low, they wouldn't have any standards at all. And the hypocrisy right now is at an all-time high, and we've got to get in there, and we've got to push back. And I hope the low country sees me as the guy that will get in there and do that and roll my sleeves up and not – care what people think of me. I'm going to go in there and do what's best. I'm not going to be in there trying to make relationships. And that brings up another point I'd like to mention to you. You know, when when Donald Trump won in 16, I thought I was going to be able to just come back to the low country and I was going to be able to get back to my day-to-day business. But that didn't work because right out the gate, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, they all started pushing back against the president. And I was asked to fire this engine back up. And as I did, I would go and get behind the, pres- the, the, the candidates that the president endorsed. And I've got, does, I've got a half a dozen letters that went to the president from different lawmakers, from the Congress and the Senate. And so when I get to – if I can make it to, the, uh, to Congress, I'm not going to be at the typical freshman in there who's uh, intimidated walking around because I've already got relationships with the, some of the candidates I mentioned earlier with um, Kramer in North Dakota, Hawley in Missouri. Uh, Lesco, and um, and uh, anyway, we got a lot of candidates there. You don't, I don't need to go down my resume of all the the relationships I've already made, but those will certainly come in handy. And so, as far as being able to get in there, I've spent 18 months in the halls of Congress socializing that bill we talked about earlier, HR 4951, the Monuments Protection Act. And so, I'm no stranger down there. And because I'm not a politician, I'm not going to get caught up in things like collusion, like a lot of people in our own party did. I'm not going to get caught up in in the bells and whistles of being a congressman because I'm not a politician, and those things don't mean anything to me. I'm going to do what's best for the little country, what's best for this country. I'm going to stand with the president, and I'm going to push back against those Democrats every chance I get. Well, one question I know you're going to come across, especially here in the low country, is offshore drilling. And, you know, the misinformation that is out there uh, and the technology that the opposite side has that is anti-drilling at all uh, are using technology facts from the 1970s. Um, What is your stance here on offshore drilling? 
we're already the number one producer of, of, of these fuels as a result of Donald Trump's policies. I'm not going to push back against the president there, but I, what I will share with you, I'm not for offshore, offshore drilling. And so I've been doing my own research, and maybe somebody brought this up, but we haven't been able to find out where they have. Let's look in Oklahoma in 2014. They had more earthquakes. They had twice as many earthquakes there as they did in um, California. The conventional wisdom there is it may be as a result of drilling and offshore and fracking. Well, we also in, in the low country happen to sit on some fault lines, one going through Somerville and one right off the coast. So until there's a little more research done, I personally wouldn't want to tamper with uh, in or around a fault line. But there are a lot of other reasons. We don't even know that there's oil out there. And, um, you know, that, that's really not going to that was used in polarized district. And uh, in my opinion, that's one of the things that that's probably the main reason that Joe Cunningham was able to pull off that upset. So uh, I, I'm not right. more offshore, off, drilling off the shore of, of of South Carolina, that's for sure. All right. And now um, I was tempted to wear my button the other day, when I, yesterday when I went to the doctor. Uh, my husband was reading, uh, I think it was Scientific American, and it had this all about climate change. And I was going to wear my I Love CO2 <laughs> button just to tick some people off, but I didn't. Uh, but they have where they're trying now to push for this carbon tax. And that's going to cost South Carolina a lot of businesses. And I, I'm going to hook you up with a gentleman by the name of Gregory Wrightstone and that wrote the book Inconvenient Facts that breaks down the lies that are being told about climate change and about the danger of this carbon tax. And So you know where I stand on this. Where do you stand on this? Well, um, I think that we certainly want to be good stewards of our environment. And um, as far as, you know, we've had, what, 30 or 40-something thousand scientists come out lately and say that, you know, they just thought it was a hoax, that this was a man-made issue, that the, that the climate goes through different changes every couple of hundred years in different spots. And um, I, I'm not convinced, as certainly not nearly as convinced as uh, a lot of the Republicans are that I've talked to, and certainly not even in uh, anywhere close to where the Democrats are. But as far as being a good steward, um, I don't think there's any reason that we shouldn't get our heads wrapped around things. But um, I'm going to have to agree with the president on this one as well. All right, like I said, I want to hook you up with this guy, Gregory Wrightstone, and the book he wrote. Because uh, it'll, it'll give you facts, and he's got a phone app that you can just pull it up, and you have a, a, a good salient point for anyone who tries to debate you on it. I think it would be a good thing for your campaign to have. And I offer this to everyone. You know, I even gave my stepson a copy of the book to read because, you know, there's so much misinformation out there. And without CO2, you can't have plant life. So by reducing CO2, you're going to reduce the, our ability to produce food. So it just makes no sense when they try to reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. But that's my rant for the day. <laughs> yeah, well, I couldn't agree um, more. And um, those false facts are – that is exactly how the Democrats mitigate this, this, this political atmosphere. They do it through innuendo, circumstance, hearsay, and um, it's just it's out, of, it's out of control. And I certainly won't be getting caught up in any of their uh, whistleblowing on things that we really don't have any evidence of. Yeah, absolutely. You know, another thing that you're strong on is the Second Amendment. 
However, there's been, especially after the shooting here in Charleston, a push for red flag laws. That is such a slippery slope, and we've already seen it abused in instances where a woman was on um, a antidepressant, it was something that was very mild. She was not suicidal. She was not a danger to herself or to anyone else, but her, her husband owned guns. And using a red flag law, they went with the warrant and took his guns away because she was on this one medication. Where do you stand on red flag laws? I'm certainly not for leg, uh, red flag laws. I don't believe it's constitutional. There's no due process. Um, and uh, I think that is just, you know, even the Democrats have come out and said they don't that they want something stronger than red flag laws. So even in the event that some some Republicans got weak need and they gave into it, um, the Democrats have already said themselves that they that it's not suitable for them and they're going to want something even stronger. And um, you could definitely count on me for standing strong with the Second Amendment. I'm a um, I've worked with many groups over the last several years um, on behalf of the, the president and bringing them into some different rallies and so forth. And um, uh, under my watch, the Second Amendment will be safe. Well, you know, what I find funny is, and I had the debate with my stepson, because, again, the misinformation is out there, military-style weapons, and they love using that term. And my response is always, wait a minute. Patton carried a pearl handle revolver. That makes it a military style weapon. So you're going to tell me revolvers will be banned? Will you be someone that would support if they say banning assault weapons or banning large capacity clips or anything of that nature? Well, let me ask you this and for your listeners and say that your wife's at home and they've got two guys at the front door, two guys at the back door, and two guys trying to come in each window on the side of the house. Do you want your wife to be standing standing there with a 9 millimeter, or do you want her standing there with an AR that she can take care of business and fortify those boundaries <laughs> and, take, and make sure that your kids are going to be there the next day? So, um, no, I'm, uh, I, I'm not. A, a, you know, I, I'm very concerned about it, but that being said, I'm concerned about a lot of things that I'm not going to be out there pushing back against. And, um, you know, we were given the right to bear arms and, um, and I'm not pushing back against that. That's a slippery slope. And anybody that does, um, they're probably just getting the wrong information. A lot like your friend stones trying to put out there and and, and educate people, but no, ma'am, I would not push back against that. You know what I, what I loved, because as a New York City cop, we were told that when you went home, you had to have a trigger lock on your your, your service weapon. Yeah. You weren't allowed. And I said, wait a minute. I'm trained to handle this firearm. I am a legal law enforcement officer. But when I go home, I've got to lock this up. And it makes no sense, because if you've got someone breaking in, someone assaulting you, that can happen in a split second. But by the time you get the key to unlock your safe or you get the combination to unlock your safe, take the trigger guard off the weapon. I'm sorry, you're dead. Boom, you're gone. So, you know, when they come up with these um, uh, ideas, it's it's just, as you said, it happens in a split second. So what do you want to be? You want to be ready or not? And that's what the Second Amendment is about. It's not about hunting, guys. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. And, you know, to me, that is just the left – uh, way of trying to get one foot in the door 
And once they get a foot in the door, they're never going to be happy. And that's why we've got to continue to push back against them as hard as possible. And, um, you know, it's just the hypocrisy out there. And like I said earlier, if it wasn't for double or low, the Democrats wouldn't have any standards. Well, I just got uh, corrected in the chat room by someone that's sitting in as a guest co-host right now in on the line that Patton didn't carry Pearl. It was ivory-handled revolvers. So thank you, Chief. I Thank you for correcting me. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll admit it. <laughs> so, anyway, um, another thing is health care. It's a major, major issue across the nation. Um, what's your ideas on this one? And I'll ask you specifically because there is a bill out there, H.R. 856, that's called the – I cannot talk today. The Physician Pro Bono Care Act of 2019, are you aware of this, and what is your stance on our health care government? Well, we've certainly got to manage and maintain the prices of these medications, especially for the seniors. Um, it's, it's out of control. Pharmac- pharmaceutical companies are, are about as greedy as you can get. Um, you know, there's so many – this is such a broad subject – one thing I'd like to talk about is the opioid epidemic. It is a crisis, not only here, but across the country. And so um, when I was working with the bikers for Trump, I would meet and sit in states like Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, and I would speak with lawmakers there. And I came up with an idea that right now, for instance, let's tell you, we've got a, a brick and mortar building. So people who are suffering from opioid abuse from Hilton Head to Myrtle Beach, at least they did last year, they have to drive all the way to Charleston in order to get the help that they need. Well, we developed a program that would have mobile medical units that would go into these rural communities and that could help fight this epidemic. But more importantly, these units would be uh, able to education. If we think back to Nancy Reagan, which is one of her, her, her milestones there, it was called Just Say No. So I'd like to see these medical mobile units that can go into these areas, help and fight the opioid abuse. But more importantly, they can go into elementary schools and intermediate schools and even some high schools. And they can show pictures of what kids look like when they were 12 years old before they went into their friend's father's medicine cabinet and got some Percodan and where that led to. And we can show what they look like then and then what they look like in some cases in a hearse driving off. In other cases, show what they look like right before they got their act together and went on to turn their life around and go into college. But I'm a firm believer in education. If we can curb this opioid abuse problem over the next 8 to 10 years and curb it by 40 percent, we're going to be way ahead of the ball there. And um, we've just really got to get some stronger policies in there. And um, like I said, healthcare is so broad. It, we could talk for. We, we need the next two days to talk about it. Well, just for your so your information, in case anyone does ask you, the HR eight fifty six Physician Pro Bono Care Act twenty nineteen calls for a simple tax deduction for physicians, including primary care doctors, emergency room physicians, and clinical uh, practitioners, as well as dentists and other medical professionals who treat Medicaid and CHIP-eligible patients at no cost. These patients represent poor individuals and families. Uh, If passed, the bill will create an alternative mechanism, a tax deduction that could potentially save federal and state Medicaid budgets billions of dollars 
and relieve the burden of future tax increases on taxpayers. It would allow for Medicaid and CHIP-eligible patients to seek care for chronic conditions in a primary care setting as opposed to the emergency room. Patients would be able to establish long-term relationships with their physicians, which would absolutely lead to better health outcomes. I think that's a fantastic idea. Growing up in the 60s and 70s, we used to have doctors that did pro bono. You would go in, and even if they didn't do pro bono, you would go in and say, all right, fine, I can't afford to pay you the whole thing today. You didn't have insurance, but you worked out a payment plan. So if it wasn't pro bono, they gave you something at a discount, you worked it out, you went to see the doctor you wanted. And I think this bill would be the perfect alternative to Medicaid. Well, yes, and I'm certainly going to have to wrap my head around that and speak with some of the doctors that I personally know. So, um, you know, not being a politician, sometimes I might not have that answer that you want to hear because I'm not going to tailor an answer that's just going to sound good to you and act like I'm in the know and I'm, I'm on it. I'm going to be honest with you, and then I'm going to wrap my head around that. And like I said earlier, I'm going to identify people who have been who have tried and failed, and then people like the, 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 the bill that you just met, that you just mentioned, that are on the cutting edge of identifying new ways that we can help. And it's a, it is a crisis, you know, and back to that opioid thing, you know, once it became an epidemic, they had all these states, they all had to curb and cut the, uh, the opioid abuse. So the first ones they started picking on were the seniors. So we got these seniors that have been dealing with chronic pain so, so long, and then they're taking away their medication and they're, they're, <laughs> they're going nuts because they're in pain now and they can't get any help. And they've been on these med- on this medication for many years now. So, um, I'm certainly going to wrap my, uh, my head around what you just told me. And, um, you know, like I said, it's just such a, a polarizing and it's such a, a broad topic that well, healthcare. We've already been through and heard Obama tell them, if you like your doctor, you can keep them too. And so it turns out sometimes when these things come out, they aren't always as they appear on paper. So we've all got to put our heads around that. And we all have to have an open channel of communication and be able to bring, bring our opinions to the table so that we can make the best decisions moving forward. Yeah, now, uh, Chief asked in the chat room, Chief, feel free to, to chime in. You, I have your line unmuted, uh, that it, treating patients at no cost, actually they do get a benefit because they do get a tax deduction. So they can have their high-end paying patients, but when they file their taxes, whatever it costs them to treat this patient becomes a deduction, and it's less taxes they end up paying. So, no, it's it's not slavery, but it it. it, it even yeah. out in the end, according to the way the bill is written. Uh, one of the things you mentioned, the high cost of, of uh, prescriptions. I went to see my cardiologist yesterday, and he was going to change one of my medications to Berlintia. And I told him, uh, wait a minute, Doc. With insurance, it would have cost me $375 for one month's supply. I said, that's with insurance. We have a high cost of prescriptions because we also have a middleman, uh, this pharmacy organization that sits between the pharmacy company and who whatever hospital or whatever is issuing the medication um ever since they allowed pharmaceutical drugs to advertise on tv and they allowed this organization to exist it's put a huge barrier would you be into looking at this pharmaceutical association and trying to get rid of this middleman I agree 100%. When we have commercials on TV talking about the 
these, these medications. This is it's outrageous. We have people now seeing a commercial and they're, they're trying to self-medicate themselves and, they're, and the pharmaceutical companies are getting their way because these people are going in here and they're asking their doctors to prescribe this when the doctor may not have prescribed it. And so, yeah, I, I think that is, it's a travesty and we, I would love to see those pharmaceutical commercials done and banned. Yeah, it used to be, but now they said freedom of speech. Um, but, you know, as you said, with these commercials, it makes people think, well, I've got an achy back. Maybe I've got this problem and I need this drug. And a lot of doctors, just to get rid of the patient, will give them the prescription. And uh, it, it's just not right. I mean, there's so many issues to discuss with you. There's so many issues that are out there. And another important one is immigration. And, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and we're talking about building the wall, but as my friend uh, Mike Cutler is always prone to say, we don't have one border state, or it's not just the southern border or northern border. We've got 50 border states. Anywhere where we have an airport or a seaport, it's a port of entry for illegal immigrants. And we have a problem not just at the southern border, but we also have a problem with the visas being over you uh, not being ignored. Uh, when they expire, people just disappear into the interior. Uh, we also have an abuse of the H-1B1 visas. What's your stance here? And I know I gave it to you in multi-parts, but tackle it any way you feel you want to. Well, um, first of all, I think I may be the only one of my opponents that's actually been to the border wall. I was at the border, on the border from El Paso to Eagle Pass, Texas, where I did aerial surveillance, and I also was in and on the Rio Grande, where I, well, CNN is reporting that we don't have any problem and no one's, um, no one is coming over the Rio Grande the way that we, they were saying. I went and uncovered personally spots on the Rio Grande that was filled with litter. And these are all uh, live Facebook posts on the uh, Bikers for Trump or on my personal page that you can see. And I had to heavily arm myself to go down there. I was down there with one other person. And um, I could see firsthand where the, the coyotes bringing their drugs came over, where the human trafficking was coming over, where these people were being crossed over, most likely with uh, being escorted by the drug cartel. And I followed this route. And that there, so we, we could see where they would cross over, and they would, there was all kinds of trash bags. So the best I could tell was that they would cross over the Rio Grande holding this, this plastic bag above their head when they got to the shore – they would dis- they would they would they would take their clothes off they put on some some cleaner fresher clothes and then they would continue off into the into these neighborhoods that were safe houses that were within a, sometimes 100 or 200 yards now that ties the hand of our of our law enforcement because once they enter a house then they've got to go and get a search warrant to go into that house. And by then they could be gone. I identified one spot on the Rio Grande where less than 150 yards away, there was a truck stop with a McDonald's in it. And my guide that lived there in Eagle Pass it was explaining to me that this is where a lot of them come in. And then they get in the back of these trucks. And when they get out, when, once they get out of Eagle Pass, they're out. They're on their way to Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, North Carolina, you name it. But one of the other disturbing facts that I identified in that trip to Eagle Pass, Texas, is this very small community. They had 14 banks there. 
And now this was a community that could have easily worked on five or six banks, but 14 banks. So again, the conventional wisdom to the locals there was that these that these banks were being used to launder the money. They get the money to there to Eagle Pass, and then the money would end up going several about a quarter mile away, right over the Rio Grande into Mexico. So I mean, there's a lot of things we got to tackle there. Um, so when I'm talking to these locals there. Um, I decided I was going to throw a rally for the president. And so what I went, I went about, I guess, about 100 miles north to um, San Antonio, and I put together a rally. But this time, instead of using bikers, I used all Mexican and Latino Americans. And we had, I don't know, maybe 150 of them show up. And these were people that were in leadership positions, not only in Texas, but across the country. And they came up and we threw down a great rally. They all knew the words to the Pledge of Allegiance. They all were very patriotic. They were all wearing flags. And every single one of them told me and the, the, the crowd that we had listening that they wanted these immigrants, these illegal immigrants to go through the proper steps just like they did. They didn't want them coming over the border. These are Mexican-Americans living right there on the border or near and around the border that said they did not want them coming in. They wanted them to go through the proper channels that Donald Trump was absolutely right and enough is enough. And when they get over to this country, they're sending tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars back to their country. Uh, they're not even spending the money here in many cases. And, um, you know, as far as the visas and the green cards, we certainly have got to get a grip on that. That might be one of the biggest uh, abuses uh, that, that we have in, in, in immigration. People coming over here, there's no way to keep track of them, and they're staying for far too long, and uh, it's certainly abusing the system. And um, this should have been addressed a long time ago, to be honest with you. Well, earlier we were discussing the U.N., because Representative Ilian Omar, in a speech on Tuesday, called for the U.S. to have the U.N. come in and handle the refugee uh, situation. She calls them refugees, but you know as well as I do, you cannot be an economic refugee. Uh, you can be a political one. You can be a religious refugee, but not an economic refugee. And we have allowed the U.N. to meddle in our affairs so many times. How would you want to see our government deal with the U.N. and with idiots such as this, you know, calling on them to administer to the U.S.? Well, the, the U.N. has been out of touch for a long time. They have um, they, they, they spent way too much money. They have very little influence anymore. And they are they're, they're, it's, it's outrageous what they're trying to pull off. And uh, I'm not a big fan of the U.N. right now. They're, they're not even close. <laughs> well, we had some ideas of where to ship them. <laughs> some ideas what to do yeah. with them. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about regarding this. You look at uh, Donald Trump right now and his efforts and to reform asylum. Um, these uh, these illegal immigrants, well, once they these immigrants before they cross the border, as they're coming up through South America, they're going to have to apply for asylum in the first country that they get to. And there's no way that any of them can come from outside of Mexico without having to apply for asylum in Mexico. And so that will curve it a lot. And as far as, you know, talking about the detention and all, I think of your listeners, I'm sure, are very savvy. I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence out there that it was a lot worse under Obama. Um, there's pictures that were showing children and little holding pins. I mean, this is just another example of the left 
trying to polarize this situation. They're pushing back against the president, against many of the same things they all themselves have already asked for. And, um, you know, and, and talking, talking about the, you know, the jihad squad and, and them, what, what they're trying to do, you know, I have a, I have a trip, I have a trip planned into Israel for 9-11 where I have all the bikers there and we're going to be riding from Tel Aviv to the 9-11 memorial in Jerusalem. And this is the only 9-11 memorial in the world that has all the names on it. And it's built from the steel from one of the falling towers. And so, um, you know, as we go over there, I'll be talking about the struggles that we have along with Israel, dealing with uh, terrorism and so forth. And I'll be able to use a good example of, of these two women that were turned away from going to Israel as congressional members and how I'm going to go over there as a candidate. And I'm going to be welcomed with open arms simply because I have a pro-Israel message. I'm going to go over there, and when I'm there, I'll be calling on the Israeli people to call back to America, encouraging their friends and their families to switch their political orientation and vote for a president who sees the value of Israel. And to give you an example, moving to embassy, like many presidents promised from Jerusalem to uh, from from I'm sorry from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And then I'll be able to contrast here and show that the, you know these women that are trying to go over there, they're trying to disrupt Israel. They're calling their anti-Semitic comments in the House of Representatives, and you don't see very many Democrats, if any, pushing back and standing up against them. So right now we have, I think, 24, if I'm not mistaken, uh, members of Congress who are Jewish. We have two of them who are Republican. So you know it's not it's very unbalanced there. And so, you know, it's my goal is to try to explain it to, to, to the, to the uh, Jewish community that 80% of the Democrats in America voted Democrat in the 2018 midterms. And now look at how this party is doing nothing for them. They are these anti-Semitic comments that are coming out and the rhetoric that's going around the House of Representatives on behalf of the Democrats is out of touch. It's out of reach. So we've got to explain to a lot of these people that they've got to get behind the president if they like their way of life, and especially if they want to see Jerusalem remain as safe and sovereign as it is. I was over in Israel over back in May, and I saw firsthand the wall going through the Gaza Strip and how it works and how it has cut down bombings and cut down so many things, um, just and 90%. And so, you know, we've got to get a grip on that. And also, um, so after our ride to the memorial, we'll be having a rally there in the heart of Jerusalem on Jaffa Street at Mike's, uh, Mike's American Restaurant. And um, I'm going to have several hundred Trump pence signs out there. And we're going to have a, a good old fashioned uh, Trump rally out there. And so this is designed, again, to get the attention of the Israeli community and in, in, they're in Israel so that they can try to influence the vote here in, in America by just explaining to their friends and families that it's outrageous that you're over there voting for these Democrats who are doing nothing to help you, who are doing nothing to, to except complaining about you and calling for boycotts. And so, you know, anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but, it, you know, supporting Israel is very important to me. And, um, I've just I've been over there many times and anyway I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you know, um it, it, I get the magazine from AMAC, uh it's the alternative to AARP for those of us that are over 50 uh and people if they're interested can I believe it's amac.org amac.us I forget which it is. But their magazine has a great article about the rise of anti-Semitism uh 
over the last couple of years. And just last year alone, there were almost 2,000 incidents of anti-Semitic attacks. Um, The total number was 1,879 just last year alone in the U.S. 57% were for harassment. Uh, 2% were assault. But remember, we also had 11 people die in just one incident in the synagogue. Uh, Vandalism, 41%. So anti-Semitism, not just in the U.S., but worldwide is up. And uh, I'm wondering, is it the rise of socialism and communism? Is it the rise of radical Islam? Wondering what is propelling this? And then you mentioned the jihad squad. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a... You just said, and uh, we've got to get it under control. Um, you know, this, where I talk about trying to give the low country a seat at the table, Israel gives America a seat at the table in the Middle East, and we must re- ha- we we got to re- we got to respect that seat at the table in the Middle East. We've got to see that this democ that the democracy over there is working, and they're surrounded by nothing but enemies and hate and people who want to take them down and out. And uh, we can't have it. We've got to stand up for them, uh, 100%. Well, another thing is you're a strong supporter of our military and veterans, as we see with you, the bikers for Trump going down to D.C. and cleaning up the Obama mess. Um, what's your stand on funding of the military? Now, you got to remember, here in the low country, we have – the Marine Corps Air Station, we have the Paris Island Recruit Depot, we have the Naval Hospital, you've got uh, a lot of military in this area, and we're going to be facing a possible round of BRAC closures, that's the base reduction uh, closures. Uh, So where do you stand? Do you think that maybe they should consolidate Paris Island with um, the uh, depot out in uh, California, or do you want to see them expand and stay here? I can't imagine sending anything to California, to be honest with you, but I'd like to see them stay here. Uh, we've got too many people here that are already comfortable in their neighborhoods and, they're, and you know, they've got these careers. And you've got to remember, it's not only incumbent to, to support our military, our active duty military, but our veterans as well. And um, I'd like to see more coming to the low country, not anything fleeting from the low country. That's for sure. We've got to maintain what we have. And, um, and I think they're doing a good job of it. And I've actually, and uh, uh, let's see, in January, I have, I have meetings that I'll be meeting with some of the, some leadership there and some retired officers that are in some, in the, some of the in, uh, military installations and bases that you just mentioned and uh, to get my head wrapped around this and see how we can help them. And as you mentioned earlier about the work we did with veterans, the veterans are the backbone of the biker community. And um, so I've got a lot of relationships with the veterans, not only in the low country, but across the country. And, and a lot of them in Washington, D.C. I worked closely with the veterans for Trump in 2016, where I was able to meet a lot of different people. I threw a rally for uh, in North Carolina, I'm sorry, in, um, in Pennsylvania about a year ago. And Oliver North was one of my speakers. Um, and we were there trying to help Blue Barletta get that Senate seat, which uh, didn't come out the way we wanted but it wasn't because we didn't do our part to see that he was elected. It's just, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do, but we were certainly Johnny on the spot there. And, um, you know, when you, like I mentioned the bill that I mentioned to you earlier, that bill was designed to, for the veterans because I didn't want to see an administration 
use – and, for instance, when we talk about the 2013 government shutdown, if the reason I got so much traction on that is because I was able to, to explain to people that that was Barack Obama that did that, okay? Because if we go back to the two government shutdowns before that, they didn't shut down open-air war memorials. That was Barack Obama upset because of Ted Cruz and the Tea Party shutting down the government and pushing back, and that was Obama's way of saying – Oh, forget it. Then, then who are they going to pick on? The, who do the Republicans love the most? The veterans. And that's why they shut down those open-air war memorials. That's what forced me out there. And um, we've got to stand strong for our veterans. We've got to give them better health care. Um, we've got to provide a lot more for these veterans. And, you know, there's a lot of different topics that come into this. You look at these these, these Middle Eastern refugees that come to our country and Many times they're starting off at like $2,400 a month. And you look at the veterans that are, have fought in two wars, in many cases with a respirator, some of them missing arms and prosthetic legs. And, you know, they're making about $1,250 a month if they're lucky. Um, if, who did the math here? I'll tell you who did the math. It's the Democrats that did the math. And that's why we've got to fill these seats with Republicans in there so we can get back to a common sense approach on how we should support these veterans and what we've got to do, um, the, the active duty, they've got to have the tools that they need to defend this country. They've got to have the resources when they come back to this country to deal like with things like PTSD. And, um, you know, these are, we talk about health care and veterans and, and military. We're, we're going to need a week. I'm going to have to call you back in the morning and we'll talk from nine until four <laughs> o'clock because we're not going to have enough time to, to, to cover it all. Oh man, that, that's the God's honest truth I mean, there is not enough time to discuss all the issues that are going on out there um, we, We've had recently, CARE got involved in the census And they wanted to have another question entered onto the census By having a, another ethnicity put in there uh, for people from these Muslim countries You couldn't ask someone if you were an American citizen But you can ask them if they're from the Middle East that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, there was enough backlash on that where the census said, uh, thank you, but no, we're not going to take your assistance. Would you see groups such as CARE and Antifa then placed on a terrorist watch list? Oh, I certainly would, especially Antifa. Antifa. I've uh, had to go toe-to-toe with those guys many a time. Um uh, you know, we were the bikers for Trump. We were on the front lines there. And, um, you know, when I talk about having to try to maintain that high ground and not pointing fingers and not not stepping up. But, you know, I explained to our guys, there's a very fine line there. Once people lay their hands on you, you get hit, you take a second one, you're within the framework of whatever you do. But those guys are out there to polarize the nation. They're looking for a fight. And in many cases, they get just what they're looking for. You know, we uh, we stood up to them in, um, in, in uh, Cleveland, Ohio at the convention, and we stood toe-to-toe with law enforcement. And then, again, we had to stand up to them at the inauguration. And so the bikers did stand up. But, see, the bikers aren't like anti, but they've got something to lose. These are blue-collar guys. These are retired veterans. They're not looking for a fight. They're just not the guys that are going to back down. Now we need lawmakers in there that aren't willing to back down too, aren't willing to bend the knee because of their feeling pressure for one way or another. 
you can't do a favor to get a favor when you're in the House of Representatives. You've got to stay in fast. You've got to have a great message, and you've got to build the support within your party and within, within your state delegation. And so, um, yes, ma'am, I certainly would like to see those groups on there. They are out there. They're outrageous. And um, I can't believe that they've been able to get away with what they get away with. Who and what and what world can you show up with a ski mask on up in someone's face? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. Somebody had a ski mask on. And if you weren't going down a slope somewhere in Colorado or West Virginia, they're there to hurt you. So I'd like to see a, a, I don't want to see ski masks on people's face. I think we need to identify them. You know, when I was dealing with Antifa, you know, they're not the smartest guys in the world. What I would do is I had cameramen all around. So we would take pictures of their jeans and their shoes. And then we would have other guys that go back and watch them. So that say that we're hanging out, having dinner somewhere, or they try to get into a circle that we're in, we'd be able to look at their at their shoes and tell exactly if they were Antifa or not. And, um, you know, we've, we've have had many across their paths many times. And, um, you know, they certainly are uh, – a, a toothache here in in this country, and uh, we we need to pull that tooth as soon as possible. Well, you know, I had asked a previous guest, someone that was uh, well not uh, founded knowledge in uh, Islam, because we do have the Muslim Brotherhood here in the United States, and we do have CARE getting involved in rewriting the manuals for the FBI, the CIA, the NYPD, uh, and. I had asked him, because they are using this tactic of the masks and the way they're attacking, I said, it is very similar to what we see going on in the Middle East in those attacks going on against Israel. So I was asking that, do you think that maybe the Muslim Brotherhood has spurred on or aided uh, Antifa? In many cases, yes. Um, You know, We've had Antifa members try to get biker for Trump shirts, and you know we've had to, you know I've, I've heard of stories of guys taking them away, but it, it would it it would fuel their narrative to do such a thing. These are these are people that are going to stoop to a very uh, they're going to stoop as low as they have to to get their point across. And people like this, they want to see chaos and they want to see mayhem. So who better to pretend you are or to support or groups causing chaos and mayhem? In this particular case, Antifa, and, um, you know, I'm not surprised at all. I'd like to see them, you know, being outlawed as a group. That would save us a lot of problems because recently I haven't read the article. I I meant to pull it up last night, but the New York Times, I understand, is now attacking the Tea Party uh, because we're back on the rise. Now, my group has been around for 10 years. Uh, and we've been called racist, uh, we've been called every name in the book, but now they want to group us together with groups like Antifa and <laughs> Black Lives Matter and Occupy, uh, in so much as they even pointed out that at one rally, a gentleman showed up with a long gun strapped to his back. Uh, they neglected to mention the person that was carrying the long gun. This Tea Party racist was a black guy. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the attack on us and conservatism is on the rise in so much that we're now we can't even put up an ad on Facebook or any other area. You've got EpicTimes.com. They're trying to close them down. NBC is trying to close them down. The attacks on conservatism is on the rise. So how would we counter that? Well, it wasn't that long ago when the IRS was um, um 
picking on these conservative groups that were popping up around the country. And we've already proven and shown that. We have – there's one thing for sure. The left is going to be looking for any foot in the door, any crack, any any anything they can, and they're going to be – pushing us back. They're going to be comparing groups like the Tea Party to Antifa. Well, that's like comparing the sun to the moon, in my opinion. And I think many other people agree agree and say the same thing. So we really get, we have to be vigilant. We can't be lazy. We can't become complacent. We have to be proactive, but we have to get in there and remember that we are fighting for the future of our country. And if we remain silent, then we're going to, we're going to, our children are going to be the ones that have to pay for this. And that's why it's important that we put people in the seats of these, the House of Representatives. They're going to get in there and fight for these things that aren't going to be complacent. There aren't going to be people that go in there that just have four things on their list. You know, when I go out and I'm talking to people, I always have to talk about infrastructure, immigration, the border wall, and socialism. But the, some of the things I don't get to talk about a lot of, a lot of times are be, uh, the, pro, the Second Amendment, which is what you've asked me about, and I appreciate that. And we've talked about Israel, but, but pro-life, and at the top of that list is supporting veterans. So we've got to have a very broad scope of the things that we want to tackle in the House of Representatives. And then we've got to have a very clear plan on how we're going to do that. And then we've got to have a clear plan on who our allies are going to be in order to get these things and these, these policies pushed forward. How are we going to at the same time get in there and repeal failed policies? How are we going to get in there and see that groups like Antifa and the Black Lives Matters are terrorist organizations? I've seen firsthand, and like a lot of people, I've been in the trenches and seen it. I've been assaulted by them. I've had to bite my tongue with them because – you know, saying bite the tongue might not sound so good to a lot of your listeners, but see, we were bikers for Trump is what I ran. We weren't bikers who think we knew best. So it was very important to me that I was very diligent and I was very protective of the image and the name bikers for Trump because I had to be very careful and very sure that they weren't going to be trying to compare us to groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter like they're doing to you to the Tea Party. And so as I was trying to push that forward, I was on a slippery slope because it was important to me to protect the president's name at all costs. Um, so, you know, I, I'm with you 100%. We've got to get rid of these groups, and um, the only way to do it is to be proactive and to have a loud, strong voice, be somebody who's not going to bow down or who's not going to compromise, that's going to sit there and fight for what's right, common sense, putting America first, keeping America first. And if that is the is your ideology, I think that we're whoever gets in there and these seats across the country, we're, we're going to do a good job. And I really believe that we're going to be able to get in here because the, the, unlike the midterms, the president is going to be at the top of this ticket. And so we're going to have a lot more help taking back these seats. And, um, you know, we, we've just got to stay after it. And, I, I, and if your listeners are out there, if they're listening to the show right now, they're already political activists because they're involved. Most people don't even know there's a midterm coming up in the low country on, on uh, June 9th. Most people won't even know until a month or two before when television commercials come out. But in my particular case, I'm looking for the patriots. I'm hoping to build the biggest grassroots movement that a congressional race has ever seen. I've already built the biggest grassroots movement right now that's benefiting the president in this 2020 election. When I left the bikers for Trump, we have 100,000 active members we can put our hands on at any time. This time last year, my social media reach was bigger than Kid Rock and Oprah Winfrey put together with over 18 <laughs> million people. 
So I hope to recreate recreate that energy here in the Low Country by explaining where I stand and how I'm going to get things done, and how unlike the politicians, I'm not going to get caught up in like I said earlier things like collusion and and, and the polar and, and all the cosmetics of the and, and, and Capitol Hill. I'm going to stay focused and I'm going to keep, I'm going to be goal oriented. I've already introduced a bill as a citizen legislator with a congressman from California and one from the District of Columbia. Not many citizens can get a congressman outside their district to, to write a bill. And so as a citizen legislator, I want to pick up. So if I've been able to get to accomplish some of the things I have as a civilian and a citizen, imagine the things that I can conquer and accomplish as a, with the tool belt of a congressman. Well, we've got a caller. In, I see callers in the studio. Uh, so if you do have a question for Chris Cox, who's running for South Carolina District 1 congressional seat, uh, please press 1 on your keypad because I see specifically one person from South Carolina in the studio. If you do have a question, uh, again, please press 1 if you want to join the conversation. And uh, this may be my next guest because I don't recognize the caller. Uh, but Chris, it has been a blast having you. People can find you at chriscox2020.com. And one of my computers just went down on me. Jeez, I've got funny things going on over here. Um, But we got the South Carolina person has raised their hand. So before I take the next caller in, uh, South Carolina caller, you're on the air live with uh, Annie, the radio chick, and our candidate, Chris Cox. To whom am I speaking? Annie, this is your next guest. This is Dr. Lear Lee for Congress. Oh, all right. I, you, you threw me with the, the area code. But, Chris, I want to thank you for joining us and telling people to go to your website to support your candidacy, which is Chris, chriscox2020.com. And I'll be talking to you and your manager about getting you over to our Tea Party meeting. Yes, ma'am. I look forward to it. And uh, there'll be pr- plenty of opportunities for your listeners to talk to me and ask me questions. And uh, I look forward to getting down south. And it's important to me that the Buford and Hilton Head and the southern parts district, that they see that their wants, needs, and concerns are just as important to me as the ones here in Charleston and Mount Pleasant. And uh, I look forward to meeting them in person. Thank you so much for having me on. I God bless for the hard work you do. Chris Cox, again, check it out, chriscox2020.com. And I got Dr. Laura Lee. I, I, my teeth are Lyra. Like Lyra? <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's Lyra. Like Vera Lee. Vera yes, Lee. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, like I said, my teeth are in backwards today. Uh, you are also a congressional candidate. You are running from my neighbor to the south in Georgia, District 7. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for um, having me, Annie. And I have to tell you something. I have South Carolina roots. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. And so that's where um, I still have family there. And so that's where you see the 843 area code because I'm calling from my personal self. But I'm a resident of Duluth, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to admit, I don't have my regular co-host with me he is moving family uh, today, so he wasn't able to be with me. So normally I have someone assist me, <laughs> but I'm, I'm winging it. I'm on a wing and a prayer. I do have a guest co-host, Chief, uh, sitting in here also, so Chief, feel free to jump in. Um, but you have an interesting background. Like you said, you were from originally South Carolina and now down in Georgia. 
but you didn't become politically active until you went up to D.C. for a seminar, right? That is correct, Annie. I am a fellow from the D. James. Kennedy Christian Statesman Program, and um, I don't know if you ever listened to Dr. Kennedy and his amazing sermons, but he had a vision to prepare uh, Christians for office. Um, He was just really tired of not having Christian representation in Congress, and so it was his vision. His vision became a reality. And in this new cohort, I am the, in the second group of fellows that um, decided to run for con- Congress. And my cohort is actually four of us. I'm, I'm the only one that has officially filed, but I believe there are three others that are going to be jumping in really soon, and two others from the first cohort. Wow, that's amazing. Because I know here in the low country where I'm at, the field is starting to widen. And the last guest is one of uh, several that I have set up for the interviews, also coming to my Tea Party meeting. And, and you know, we're we're so deplorable. We're racist. We're nasty people. <laughs> no, no, but, no, no. You're not. No, you're you're absolutely not. That that's one of the things. Um, I, Annie, I, I believe that the Lord has definitely called me to this race. Um, he's opened so many doors. But that's one of the things, being a Christian conservative, that I want to go to Congress to fight for, to say, hey, Republican values, conservative values are not racist values. They are our traditional values that our country was founded on. And as a African-American female from Charleston, South Carolina, um, born and raised descendants of slaves, the narrative that the left has painted that our party is a bunch of racists is just absolutely not true. We are a diverse party. We are a party that believes in traditional values. We believe in uh, removing and, and removing the t- egregious spending. We believe in our public safety officers uh, pr- protecting our, our ICE officers, just the people that protect and serve us. I mean, we we're, we're just a party that, um, that 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 loves. Yes, we have bad actors. They're bad actors in every party, Annie. But nevertheless, don't label us racist because of the traditional values we stand on. It's just simply not true. Coming from a black female. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wish I had my regular co-host on because he's also involved in the Frederick Douglass Foundation, and he would be echoing everything you say. You know, you, you sent over to me a list of issues that are, are near and dear to you, and one of those was the heartbeat bill that recently passed in Georgia, and consequently mm-hmm. Georgia is now being boycotted by Hollywood. Oh, shame on you. And we mm-hmm. have a similar bill, I believe, running right now in uh, well, our house is right now on vacation, but here in South Carolina. Uh, but we see an assault on the preborn child. I'm not going to call them unborn. They are preborn. And, and we no longer look at them as individuals and human beings. Now, it's funny because just the other day, my husband and I had to go down into Savannah. And along the route, and I'm sure you know where I'm talking about going over the um, – the bridge from oh, I just had another brain fart going right. into Dan from Bluffton. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. 
But I, they had these beautiful billboards that were saying, hey, if you're pregnant, that's a human that you're carrying, sending that message out. And yet we see from the left the dehumanizing of that infant. Yes, yes. Um, Annie, it is it's very disheartening. It breaks my heart. You talk about Hollywood, but specifically Disney, because I have always been a fan of Disney ever since I was a little girl growing up, watching Cinderella, Lady and the Tramp, um, you know, just, just, just wonderful t- stories. And, and one that I can think of in particular is um, The Little Mermaid. And Ariel is, Ariel is saying, you know, wandering free, wish I could be part of that world. When I think of preborn children, as you just expressed, they are – Americans, they are little children floating around, wandering free in the womb, wishing that they could be part of this world, and they deserve to be. And to 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 turn this into a big debate about it, the woman's right of reproductive rights is just wrong. Our Declaration of Independence, a piece of it, Annie says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, which are life, life, Annie, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those little pre-born babies swimming around in the womb like Ariel was, like in Disney, are life. They are life, and we deserve to fight for that life. Also, Annie, as, an, as a black female, the, the rates, I, I don't know if you know the statistics exactly, but there are more black babies more black babies, babies of color, being aborted than they are being born, specifically in the state of New York. That is actual, factual data. More black babies are aborted than being born. And so when you, when you want to talk about racism and, and, and the left narrative about fighting and Hollywood getting all of bent out of shape and saying we're going to threaten to pull out of Georgia, well, you know what, Annie? So be it. Because if we can't stand for the lives of innocent children, if we can't fight for innocent children, Annie, you're a Christian just like I am. It reminds me of Pharaoh ordering the, the men in Moses, the little boys in Moses' time, being thrown into the river. What is the difference, Annie? We have to fight our children, and I am pro-life, and I'm not ashamed of that. But in in fighting for pro-life, we also have to support mothers, because there are some situations where mothers find themselves in difficult situations. So when we talk about that, we have to talk about legislation that's going to support mothers. Uh, For example, our adoption laws in some states are, 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 are just very difficult to navigate. Let's roll back some of those laws. So people that are having problems with having fertility issues and who want to adopt babies have the opportunity to do so. There's a way to fix it without threatening uh, people that believe in pro-life. There's a way to fix it without uh, aborting babies, irrespective of what color they are. But again, just want to reiterate, the majority of babies being aborted are babies that look like me. And I, I'm 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 against it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have asked this question many times of the Black Lives Matter movement. If Black Lives Matter so much, why aren't you outside of a Planned Parenthood protesting it? 
You know, if you really truly believe Black Lives Matter, then why don't you make sure that the family has a father active in the family? Because you're not going to advance. The vast majority of people born in a single-parent home do not advance as well as someone with a two-parent home. You know, there's so many things to do to make black lives better than what we see being done at this point. But we should be saying all lives matter. You know, Absolutely. You look at, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead, please, Dr. No, Lee. I, I just, no, I just, I just wanted to say it is um, – you know, when we when we look at um, the history of of, of 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 my people and where we've come from, and um, just just the the pain of slavery, and 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 being from Charleston, South Carolina, um, I I am very familiar with the stories my family told me about the Jim Crow South and us not being able to uh, be go to the same fountains and all of that. But at the same token, as we progress, as we progress, we understand the pain of the past, Annie, but that should not keep us looking back. That should keep us continuing to look forward. So as I heard you and Chris talking, because I, I tuned in early, I apologize, but it's about us as Americans growing together and fighting those narratives that are contrary to who we are as Americans. Don't get me wrong. There are bad actors in every group, Annie, every group. But being able to have civil discourse, civil debate about these issues instead of fighting and yelling, we've got to find a better way. And when in Congress, that's what I'm going to do. And and, and not to steer away, but i got to say, when it comes to the AOC, Annie, and her talking about the Electoral College and it being a racist scam, I almost fell out of my chair. I'm like, when is the last time she read the Constitution? When is the last time she looked at Article 2, Section 1? One of the things that the beauty about the Electoral College is that the candidate receiving the greatest number of votes in the college, if such number be a majority of the whole number, becomes president. There's only been two times in our nation's history when it failed to reach such a majority. And so what I'm like, AOC, what don't you understand? It levels the playing fields for voters in large states, in small states, and in urban and rural areas. If elections, Annie, were only decided based on the popular national vote, what does that mean, Annie? That means that more populous states and large cities would have greater power to elect the president. And places like Buford and, you know, certain places in Minnesota, you know, candidates might completely avoid campaigning in less populated states and rural areas. So it levels the playing field. It's not a racist scam. Now, I get, I get where she was coming from. Where she was coming from is initially during the time it was set up, Slaves were counted as citizens but unable to vote. That is not the case now, Annie. So if you're going to put something out there, you have to put the facts out there. You have to put it in perspective. It is not a racist scam. It's our Constitution, Annie, and we have to abide by it, and we need to abide by it. 
Well, you know, there is the national movement for the national popular vote, and they're using the Constitution against us. And they've had several states that have passed resolutions or legislation uh, almost identically worded, basically saying that however the national popular vote goes nationwide, that state's electoral college delegates will vote with the national popular vote. So if we had done that and had that passed here in South Carolina, Hillary Clinton would have gotten our electoral college delegates. And this is a movement that is going on. We've had some states now trying to reverse their legislation and resolutions to pull out of that. Uh, But what is your stance on something like that? Would you work for legislation to declare how electoral college votes should be allotted? Let me me just say this. We cannot as a country change our constitution based on how many examples? There are only five presidents, five Annie's. We're on 46 with President Trump. There are only five presidents that were elected based on the Electoral College. Just because a particular party does not win during that election based on those five times doesn't mean we should throw it out the window. I am against that. Because if it was the other party, would they be saying abolish the college, abolish the college? We're only talking about five times, Annie. It it just it absolutely just doesn't make sense. We have to deal with issues um, effectively. We have to be wise and sensible about it and not just get all, you know, bent out of shape when things don't go our way. We have to work together as a country, as Americans, to create legislation that's going to benefit our country. And that's just the bottom line. Outdoing the Electoral College, regardless of the push, is not going to work based on a minority. Five presidents. <laughs> Huge amen to that one. You know, um, a huge issue is health care. And I had asked Chris if he was aware of this. There is legislation, uh, H.R. 856, which is the Physician Pro Bono Care Act of 2019, which basically tells physicians or any uh, medical care doctor, including dentists, that if you have a Medicaid patient, treat them as a pro bono patient. And then when you file your taxes, you get a huge tax deduction for whatever that cost is. It would take people off the Medicare, uh, the medic, not Medicare, Medicaid. So the federal government and the state government was doesn't have a bill they have to pay, and the person can see the doctor of their choice instead of going to an emergency room. Would this be something you would support? I am. I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna support, Annie, and um, I am all for the health care choices proposal. You know, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Um, establish a regime of subsidies, mandates, regulations, and tax penalties that resulted in substantial increases in premiums for individual insurance coverage. You know that, and and, and the listeners know that. You know, I'm preaching to the choir. But what I I do want to add to this conversation, Annie, is the health care choices proposal 
is the way to go. The, the states that have um, taken the the Trump waiver to back out of some ACH um, ACH provisions, Annie, they have seen a seven point five percent reduction in premiums. Seven point five percent. The states that are continuing in that cycle, Annie, have gone up. They've seen a jump of three percent in in their premiums. So the healthcare choices proposal is something I would definitely support. Why? Because lower co- co- costs and better choices. We know with the ACA, Obamacare, we did not have a lot of choices. Americans did not have a lot of choices. It would com- empower consumers. Um, it would reduce costs by unwinding heavy federal mandates and allowing states to innovate. You know, you and I, Annie, are constitutionalists. So we understand the Constitution line by line, precept by precept. The Constitution was never written to handle all of these these extra things that we have. We need to give some of this responsibility back to the state. And so the health care choice proposal would do that. It would also refocus subsidies on those who need them the most. We get hit all the time. The Republican Party doesn't care about the least of these. Okay, yes, we do. Americans need to know that they can find private insurance that they can afford. States would create their own um, programs to support low-income families. It would also provide security and protect high-cost patients. It ensures that all Americans can choose a private health care plan. I'm going to tell you right now, Annie, Comrade Sanders is all about Medicare for all. Oh, Medicare for all. And that would kill us because we would only have one choice. And look at the Canadian model. What's going on in Canada? You have patients waiting for, for, for days and months and up to a year just to get care. That is not what we want in America. We want to continue to give Americans choice so they can choose their own private health care plan, so they can keep their insurance plans. We also want to protect life. You and I just got through talking about that. Funding for these grants to states would run through the existing, the existing children's health care program. So those life protections would be written in the CHIP statute, which a lot of the states already have. It would just be refined and protected. And then finally, put federal spending on a real budget, not just if bureaucrats don't do health care well. Free market reform, private industry, and states do health care well. Annie, to answer your question, I would support any model that looks like the health care choices proposal. And I'm sorry, I'm talking fast because I just, when, when I hear Medicare for all, it just makes me cringe because <laughs> it's all it's going to do is going to shoot, shoot everything up and people don't understand. They're thinking free. It's not free. There is a cost. The cost is going to be your taxes. So I would rather you have more choice, more options through the free market than your taxes go sky high and you we, we look like Canada where we're waiting forever to see a doctor. I got a friend of mine that is going through that right now, and uh, she's in a lot of pain, and it's it's months and months before she gets anyone to take a look. You know, um, we have that same model in England you know, government-run um, care, and it's just not working. I want to remind people that they can find you at your website, 
Um, not I had two of them. It's your name, yes. the number four G A. Yeah, go ahead. I'm go sorry. Ahead. So it's no, finish, please. the number four Georgia seven dot com, and then it's also Lee dot com. So L E R A H L E E dot com. Um, fantastic. You know, one mm-hmm. of the things that you are an expert on, and this is your background, this was your profession, is education. And I got to admit, yesterday I sat down with some members of our county GOP, and I actually went head to head with some of them over a school uh, referendum that we have coming up on the ballot in November. Uh, it's a lot of waste you see coming in. But do you think the education should be taken away from the federal government? Thank you, Jimmy Carter, and put back to the state. What I think, I want to talk about me being a South Carolinian originally, uh, like I said, from Charleston, South Carolina, downtown Charleston, right not too far from the Citadel, the Military College of the South. You know that I'm well familiar with the corridor of shame. You know that I'm well familiar with the disparities among certain groups um, in education, blacks and Latino children. And it wasn't education under the federal government has not been working well. As a mother, as a mother and an educator, I want to be able to look in my children's eyes and say, I fought for you to have the best educational outcomes. And Annie, you know, that is not the case for all children in America. With that being said, I will support legislation to give states power, to give more power to choose the best educational outcomes for all children so that they can be successful. The victory is in the classroom. My former superintendent used to always say that. The victory is in the classroom. We have totally different political beliefs, but we, 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 I loved her. We, we got along really well. But the one thing we always agreed on, Annie, was the victory was in the classroom. Take some of that money that we're paying up. The, the, the people that run the Department of Education, let's look at more efficient ways to, to, to shrink that and give that money to the state, to the teachers, any that work, many of them work tirelessly every day to ensure the very best. Give that money in the classroom so that our children can achieve. I don't care if they're Latina. I don't care if they're white. I don't care if they're black biracial, Asian, I don't care what color they are. Annie, we will be a stronger American if we, America, if we use our educational dollars more efficiently by giving it to the states and putting it in the classroom where it belongs. It used to sadden me. Um, I, I, I lived in Mount Pleasant, so I was blessed to live in a, in a great, um, in a great school. My, my children went to Wando Cario, James Island. Charter High School, the older children, the younger children were here in Duluth, Georgia, at uh, Duluth High, Duluth Middle, and then my youngest at Creek at Creekstone um, in, in Duluth. But when we were in South Carolina, we were blessed to be in a good feeder system. But my, my boys, Annie, my black boys were the only blacks uh, in their AP period, in their AP or either their um, honors class. That can't be. We have to ensure that irrespective of race, our children are able to compete with everybody else 
and you see a more uh, you see more variety in IB, AP, and honors classes. I just want to uh, step in here for a second because I have a guest co-host who just finished his show, Ron Edwards, uh, in on the line with us. So, Ron, I'm sorry. I saw your number earlier, but I got so involved in the conversation. I didn't unmute you. I apologize. Our guest is Dr. Laura Lee. Uh, She's running for Congress out of Georgia's 7th District. Um, So if you came in the conversation, I wanted to catch you up on there. Um, Now I just lost my dream. What? So, Ron, introduce yourself, please. Ron? Oh, I'm sorry. Hello? Yes. Yeah, Um, yeah, well, I want to thank you. Hi, I I just wanted to thank you for um, inviting me today. And uh, I did catch a few sentences of uh, what your guest was saying. And boy, she sounds like a smart, great lady. Um, And her suggestions uh, for improving the education system. Uh, I host uh, what's called the Ron Edwards Experience Talk Show. It's uh, heard on AmericanMatters.us worldwide and and on several stations around the country. Our flagship station is KCKQ out of uh, Reno, Nevada. And I also host and produce the Edwards Notebook, uh, which is syndicated uh, around the country. It's on about 200 stations now. And I'm also a weekly columnist for uh, Capitol Hill Outsider News with Views and uh, America Out Loud. And so you can catch me on uh, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, uh, my website, that's um, theronedwards.talkspot.com. See, now, Dr. Hi. Lee, this is the show you have to get on. <laughs> so, oh, you definitely. You have to invite me. I would be glad to. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Go ahead, one, Ron. I wanted to, to, to ask I heard your guest mention that if we put more dollars, I think I heard correctly, if we would put more money uh, into the classrooms, that uh, that would help matters. Did I hear that correctly? I I said if we would take money away from our government bureaucracy, take it away from Washington and put it, give it back to state and in the classroom, we would see we would see a change. Government dollars don't belong in Washington when it comes to our children. It belongs in the states. It doesn't belong in Washington with bureaucrats. It belongs to the states. Let the states handle education. Absolutely. Where teachers, I, and, teachers and parents know best. Yeah. I think oh, we should, uh, to do that, we need to get rid of the Department of Education. And then that would stop that automatically. I I I believe that we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of programs and in, in departments that we need to look at to see efficiency. Are we being are, are we running these agencies effectively? And I don't I don't know if that analysis has been done. And in Congress, if elected, I'm going to go and I'm going to I'm going to fight for that. Let's look at efficiency. If what you, you guys heard the saying, if it's if it's broke, fix it. I think we have a broken system, and I, how many more children have to fall before we realize that it doesn't? The dollars don't belong in Washington. Again, it belongs to the state. Would you? Well, that's let me try to ask you a question. Yeah. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I'd like to ask you um, when it comes to efficiency. Our, our our government school system right now has been efficiently 
They're in fact they're the most efficient in the world when it comes to indoctrinating students rather than educating them. And it's not that uh, nothing is being efficiently put into the minds of our young people. Much of the wrong stuff is put in. And um, in fact, I was talking about that earlier and how because of the indoctrination, our students, we're, there are millions of Americans right now of securing the jobs that are available by the millions for people that are just waiting for people to assume them. And instead of addressing that problem directly for Americans, people like J.P. Morgan's uh, organization, they're saying, just bring in more people from around the world who are prepared educationally. And we need to, in our school systems, stop them from indoctrinating our students and get back to old-fashioned good education. What say you? I don't – oh, my – you would not hear me argue with that at all. We – um we, you know, there's a saying, charity starts at home before it goes abroad, and one of the best things or ways we can show love in our country is by ensuring, and I don't know if you were on the call earlier when I was talking about, you know, the International Baccalaureate Program, AP, IB, STEM. Um, well, I might not have mentioned STEM, but I mentioned AP, IB. Um, one of the things we can do to, bet, to show love, charity at home, is by making sure that our children are, our students are effectively able to compete. And so to answer your question just directly, I, I, I agree. I agree that I had a teacher, a, a guidance counselor in high school, tell me, um, oh, you're not college material. Well, a lot of that had to do with my, um, the color of my skin, um, but I was a gifted underachiever at the time. I was it was sophomore and going through some things. Um, so I was a BC student, but said I was not college material. So she was indoctrinating me, or I'm sorry, he was indoctrinating me to make me think that I was not smart enough, that I was not good enough. With that being said, I went to college. I was on the national dean's list. I was who's who among American colleges and universities because I didn't listen to him. And he inspired me to prove him wrong and to be the best that I can be. So I, I, I agree. There is a lot of um, indoctrination that has to change so that our students can know you can be the very best. We don't have to bring in, you know, people from, the, uh, from other countries for, to, to do IT when we have students here and, and Americans here that can do IT work as well. Um, this is our country, and we want our, our American citizens to know that, that you can be the best you can be. But unfortunately, you do have instances where, where people make you feel like you're less than a person. Well, you know, oh, uh, uh, Ron. Oh, I have to say, I have to add, add Ron and Annie. I wish I could find him because I say, you know what? You told me I'm not college material, but I have a PhD too. I wish I could. Well, I've got one that, that it's along the same lines. As a matter of fact, Ron, she was in Charles, charge of the Charleston, South Carolina school district. Uh, but when I, my guidance counselor oh, and I had his, Michael sit down with him, his response to me was what you should do is take secretarial courses here in high school, find yourself a good boss, and marry him. That was what 
I was told by my by guidance counselor. Two years later, uh, two years or so later, I returned to that high school, uh, and I was teaching an adult education course. I had a degree in business. I owned a business. I had 13 employees, and the person running that adult education course was my former guidance counselor. Uh, and he saw me in the school and says, oh, I see you're taking my advice and taking secretarial courses. And he says, no, I'm teaching one of your courses. So I, I got to do the one-up on my guidance counselor, Dr. Lee. <laughs> Talk about sweet yeah. revenge of success. <laughs> yes. Amen. Absolutely. All right, we've got to Dr. Lee. She's running for Georgia's District 7 congressional seat, and there's so many more uh, questions to ask you, and I'm getting my papers all mixed up over here. Uh, immigration is a big problem we have here, and we had Representative Ilian Omar in a speech on Tuesday um, uh, saying that we need to have the U.N. come in and administer our refugee uh, problem. At the southern border, um, but the southern border is not a refugee problem; it's an illegal alien problem. So someone has to educate her. What are your views, and what would you work for when you become Georgia's congresswoman? You know, I am for um, I, I am against illegal in, in, um, immigration. I am for border security. I I don't know where this open borders thing came from. I don't know where saying this is a racist thing. I I, I don't understand because it is uh, our nation, our nation cannot continue to be successful when we have open borders and just an influx and influx of of, of people. Uh, Number one, safety. We have to think about the safety and security of our American citizens. Number two, we also have to understand that when we are when we call illegal immigration racist because we want to secure our borders, we are again not taking care of. Remember, charity starts at home and then is shed abroad. We are not taking care of our Americans, specifically our veterans, some who are homeless on the streets, some who are homeless on the streets, haven't showered, haven't gotten the health care they needed, who's, who's marching for our veterans? Who's calling racism against our, our veterans? We're, making, we're putting so much emphasis on, on what's going on at the southern border. Let, you know what the U.N. can do, Annie? The U.N. can help and go down to the countries that the, 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 the immigrants or illegal immigrants are coming from to help them set up their countries to be a democracy like America, to help clean up the drugs in their country so it can be like America, not come and help us. They need to go help those countries so that people won't, won't want to flee, that they will want to stay in their, in, in their homes. And we need border security. Border security has nothing to do with racism absolutely whatsoever. It has to do with protecting America, keeping the sovereignty of our nation. And if you want to come to our country, come to our country legally. Come to our country legally like everybody else. I have a a, a good friend right in Mount Pleasant. She is Canadian-American. She came to UC, University of California on a, on a, on a student visa met a guy, fell in love, who was a, uh, who was a South Carolinian, a South Carolinian, married him, 
but she had to go through the process to get her citizenship, and she went through it legally. We shouldn't bear the, the burden for people that come to our country illegally. It's not right when we have so many people coming here doing it the right way. Well, you know, I hear these stories, and uh, Nick Adams was a guest on the show a while back when he first came to the United States, where the people are spending upwards, I heard, anywhere from 10000 to $50,000 to become a legal American citizen when they enter here legally. And yet we're trying to streamline the process for illegal aliens to become legal residents. Would you see uh, a reform of our immigration system to make legal entry individuals a streamlined, less expensive process of becoming an American citizen requiring uh, that they have a job, a place to live, that they do not take any uh, government benefits for a minimum of five years, things like that? I would support legislation that um, would ensure that we have have a, a process, Annie, have a process in place. I, I want to look at what we have on the books now, but I would support legislation to support we have a process in place, just as you said, where people adhere to this certain rubric to be able to get in our country and 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 and, and maintain legal legal residence or legal status. I, I'm not going to support legislation that, um, that, that, that doesn't support legal Im- immigration. I, Annie, help me. Am I on a different planet? Where did this open border <laughs> thing come from? I mean, I, I mean, really, I just, and, and, and the anger right now, we had more about deportations and things like that. We had more deportations under our previous, um, um, uh, administration under President Obama's administration than we have under this administration. So if it doesn't go, it seems like we're living in a time, if it doesn't go the left way, the way the left wants it, then it's all wrong. Instead, we should be working together, not making, not not fighting against each other, but working together as Americans, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, we should be working together to solve this problem, to fix America, for the safety of the children that are caught up in this, this illegal immigration, for the safety of the parents, and to help the countries where people are, are, are fleeing from. We, you've got, we've got to stop this foolishness, Annie. It just doesn't make sense. It's it's not it's, no. it's not pointing the fingers. Let's fix it. We are all Americans. Let's fix it, secure our borders, and make it better. I'd like I'd like to jump okay, in then. real quick. Um, Go ahead, Rod. Here's something that that here's something that may throw you for a loop. But our legal immigration, forget illegal border crossers, but our legal immigration over a million and a half people come into our nation legally every single year, which means that a lot of people can afford to come in here and they're willing to pay whatever. Now, what do you think about the, the, the idea that there needs to be even a moratorium? Not only, we need, not only do we need to stop illegal border crossing, but for, there needs to be a moratorium. Every so many years, there should be a moratorium on legal immigration. The reason why I'm saying that because when you have a million and a half people coming into your country, even legally, every single year, there's no chance 
for them to become assimilated into your republic. And because they're followed year by year by new people coming right behind them from their old cultures. And so they remain more ensconced in the mentality of, the, of where they came from rather than getting caught up in assimilating into American culture. And that's what I have, I'm finding, especially with right. the newer immigrants that are even coming here legally now. Uh, what say you? I know in the past we used to do that. Every once in a while there would be a moratorium, and under, uh, I think it was Harry Truman, there was mm-hmm. something called Operation Wetback, where the illegals were rounded up, a million of them, and they were told to get out, and no one went to Nutsville. You know, the Democrats didn't go crazy, and, uh, you know, we entered the country out of the illegals, and every once in a while we would slow down illegal so that there would be time for assimilation. What say you on that? Um, I don't believe in chain migration, Ron, to answer your question. I, I, I just don't. So I would be um, as willing to um, look at legislation based on what you said because based on what you said, simply to help our economy, um, to help the Americans that are already here, that are struggling, that are already living in poverty, I, I would I would be in agreement with that. I would I, I just would need to look at it, do more um, research. But currently, to, to to go along with your point, I don't believe in. I would work to um, uh, eliminate chain migration and the catch and release policy. I, I I just I don't I don't I don't agree with any of that. So I hope that okay. answers your question. <laughs> could I could I ask you what led you? And I'm happy. To hear you say that, but what specifically led you to be against chain migration and all of these things? Because a lot of you know people have different ways of coming to those conclusions, and in my opinion, that's the right one. But what what led you to to that, and uh, concerning our, our immigration situation? When I go to different cities um, in major U.S. Um, cities as I travel. And I know a lot of um, cities have created um, ordinances where they're trying to hide their homeless. But um, you see so many faces. Ron, when you look into the eyes of Americans and you see Americans that have their military hat on or shirt or and they smell and they're reciting things from the past, it makes you think, wow. We have all of these Americans, some of whom have served our country, some of whom have fought for our country. We have all of these Americans who have probably lost it all. They're sitting now on the side of the street, and yet we we, we bring in so many people. And, and going back, I, I don't want to get caught up on the open borders concept, but, Ron, what makes me stick to my conviction? is when I see the suffering of American citizens who were born on American soil, who live here, who have fought here, I'm like something, there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect. Maybe you don't go to the places I go and see the things that I see. I'm sure everyone has come across a, a group of homeless people or tent cities here and there. Ron, that what keeps my position the way that it is. 
because we have if 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 we fail to take care of our country and we take care of everybody else, who are we as Americans? This is my country, land that I love. How are we showing that we love our land when we don't take care of our citizens? And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking about veterans, people, veterans that you know, Ron, are on the street right now. We've got to take care of them first. Wow, that's a huge mm-hmm. amen to that one. Yes. A huge amen. Now, you're running for Congress out of uh, Georgia's 7th District, and um, we find Congress has a knack for passing laws that make your head spin. And there have been attempts in the past to pass legislation that when you do present a bill and you bring it to the floor or to committee, you've got to cite where in the Constitution you are authorized to take whatever that action is, uh, which would make a lot of stuff that's been passed in Congress unconstitutional. Uh, Where do you stand on that? Would you support legislation to say if you bring something forward, cite the Constitution that says we have the power to do that? I, I think that one of the biggest issues, Annie, that we have in America, um, in Congress, is that we have congressional leaders that unfortunately don't understand the Constitution. And just like we do onboarding board, in, in education where we onboard, we give an orientation, we need to have um, more – because what do what do Congress rep, congressional reps do? They they say they are going to uphold the Constitution. I think they say that, but they don't really mean what they say. My my pastor um, just preached. I I, I attend um, Cornerstone Baptist Church. My pastor is in Lawrenceville. Um, my pastor is Pastor Dave. He's an amazing uh, pastor. He was just telling us, and Annie, you would appreciate this, Ron, you would too, but but saying a lot of people, like a lot of people say they're Christians, but they really aren't Christians. You know, they, they say they know the Bible, but they really don't know the Bible. So same thing with congressional leaders. They, they hold up an oath to say they're going to uphold the Constitution. Annie, they don't even know what's in the Constitution. So yes, I would support legislation. If we're going to be the founding fathers envision us to be representatives of the people. And in order for us to effectively represent the people, we have to know the Constitution in which we say we we will uphold. So absolutely, Annie, I would support legislation to get us back to the Constitution because what's the use in taking an oath if you're not going to honor it? What's the use of <laughs> – I mean, come on, Annie. It's, it's common sense. You have to know what you're taking. I will uphold the Constitution – but just like you said, you're making legislation that doesn't do it. It's hypocrisy, and, and enough of it is enough. All right. Now, another thing that people are pushing now is the climate change and the carbon tax. And uh, I was in my doctor's office, I mentioned this earlier, and I was so tempted to put on I love CO2. Because without CO2, plants don't grow. If plants don't grow, we can't produce foods. So where do you stand on what is going on with legislation to push for uh, more laws and regulations on climate as well as climate uh, CO2 tax? 
You know what? I want to. I just want to emphasize, Annie, that regardless of if a person believes in man-made climate change, to what degree that is or is not possible, you know, it's important, Annie, to remember that um, addressing changes to the climate does not, and I repeat, does not require require punishing middle class. The middle class of America goes back to what I said about when I go visit cities. You know, uh, and and what we see, it's clear to everyone that you know the true primary. Well, you know what? Let me back up, Ron. Let me back up. It's not clear to everyone, but it's clear to us on this phone that the primary contributors to climate change are the Chinese. The annual CO two <laughs> emissions of China were what ten million tons in 2016, and the United States only produced what five. China's 10 million um, industrial pollution from China has spread to Korea and Japan like acid rain. Annie and Ron, y'all know this. I'm preaching to the choir, but for our listeners, the the Journal of Geophysical Research has even documented Chinese pollution contributed to acid rain in Los Angeles. The New York Times, a former newspaper, and I call it a former newspaper, Annie, because I used to love <laughs> the New York Times. At one time, it was balanced. But now I'm just I get a headache. Uh, I just I'm just like oh my gosh. What, let's get back to the the New York Times of the old days. But you know, said in 2007 that all of its major cities are constantly covered in a toxic gray fog that contributes to hundreds of thousands. Annie, Ron, hundreds of thousands of deaths every year. But what does the left do? What 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 does the what does the left say in the environmentalists? They want Americans to spend $90 trillion on a Green New Deal when who, where the, where's the environmental issues coming from? What sense does that make? Why is it the American people's responsibility to spend so much to prevent a barely problem, a little bit, y'all heard me say 5 million compared to China's 10 million, right? Why should we be the bearers of that from now when China is destroying so much of the world and their population today. How does us as Americans given up on economic and political freedom, and I'm talking fast, I'm just getting riled up here for a second, in America today <laughs> stop pollution in China and prevent global climate change 100 years from now? Ron, can you answer that question? Because I don't get it. Just like I don't get the open borders. I've got one. I've got one answer for you. The reason why they they want to put it on the backs of America, it's the same reason. Just like with plastics, uh, the Asian countries dump set ninety that you find today, and yet San Francisco and Los Angeles want to ban the use of plastic in their cities. Yet they don't mind, literally. Tons and tons of excrement on their sidewalks. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing is an internationally based, Cloward Piven inspired crush, mm -hmm. attempt to crush America through false issues, force America to spend herself into oblivion because America is the only nation on the earth that stands in the way. And I don't know if you're familiar with Cloward Piven. Um, these were two people that um, 
Their book came out in 1972, Two Professors, and How to Destroy the United States uh, from Within. And so these people, one of the ways is to come up with issues that are based on false, false sciences and false political views that would be destructive to this country. And the reason why they want to wipe out the United States because we're the only thing after God that stands for liberty, for, for the individual, mm-hmm. and stands against what the United Nations is pushing for, which is globalism and things of that nature that would wipe out our rights as individuals. And, and that's the bottom line for all of this. Uh, we have the and innovation in this country. Amen. Yeah. All right, we've, well we've got said. about five minutes left. So. Okay. And, Ron, if yeah, I may say to your point, just to add uh-huh. to what you were saying, concerns over climate change, it doesn't require socialism. If there was ever an example of the failure of central planning in dealing with climate change, it's all China. And I love how you how you framed putting it back on America to bear for us to bear the economic burden. It's not yeah. our burden to bear. So yeah, I, I, I like how we piggyback piggyback on that. Um, thank you for for sharing that. I'm sorry, Annie. I didn't. I just see you got me on your show, Lyrally.com. LearlyForGeorgiaSever.com. I I'm just I've enjoyed this hour. It's gone by so fast because you're talking about issues that are near and dear to my heart, and and I, oh my gosh, I just appreciate it. Well, it is it is absolutely my pleasure, Dr. Lee. And uh, there is a link up on the show description, so when people listen to the archive, they can click on it and follow your campaign and support you. God bless you for the hard work you do, and we'll have if you get your primary, we'll have you back on. How does that sound? I. I would love that. I would love that. We are almost at our third quarter goal a month early. We're almost sitting at $100,000 So uh, by August 30th. So, you know, if the callers can call in and donate Learly.com, I really would appreciate it. Because I just, like you and Ron have been saying, I, 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 I know that I can go to Congress and stand up against a lot of the leftist socialist agenda um, and bring us to a place where we can have um, civil discourse, stop playing the race card. You know, AOC can't play the race card with me, a black female. I'm just, I would love to debate <laughs> no. her. I would just love to debate <laughs> her. And, um, and, and, and just get back to we the people in legislation that makes sense for our, our country. So vote for me. I mean, y'all can't vote for me, but I can vote for you. Y'all cannot vote for me, but I can vote for you, and you can also donate to my campaign. Annie, God bless you. Continue the good fight of faith. Next time, we we have to talk about Christians being persecuted next time because that's another one of my heart oh. issues. But um, oh. I, would, I have appreciated this, this hour with you. And, Ron, have me on your show. I will be glad to, to talk. <laughs> you got it. You will All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee, and God bless for the hard work you do. Ron, I want to thank you for joining us. And also, Chief, who came in at the first part of the show and uh, guest co-hosted also. Ron, uh, I'm telling everyone to check out your show uh, that you, you you have on across the nation. And I will give you Dr. Lee's uh, information. I'll text you her phone number so you can talk to her directly. And, thank Ron, thank you, thank you, you for so stopping in. All right, God bless yeah, for the hard work you do, too. God bless you. God bless you. And thank you <laughs> right. so much, Annie, for all you do.
Thank you. All right, Ron Edwards, check out his radio show also, and as well as the columns he's got all across the the nation. Uh, We will be back next Friday. We've got Katie Landing, another candidate running out of South Carolina District 1 for Congress. Um, I'm hoping that I'm going to have Laura Loomer on. I'm working with her campaign to get her on in the near future. But mark your calendar, Friday the 13th. Oh, it's going to be a devil of a show. We've got uh, Judge Janine Pirro back on the show. She has a new book that just came out this weekend. Check her out on Amazon.com. I'm going to leave you with our closing number, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, I say good night, God bless, and be safe out there this weekend. It's a holiday weekend. (laughs) 